0: Nineteen eighty eight. The crime rate in the United States rises 400 percent 1991 the united states police force is formed 1997 new york city is a walled maximum security prison john carpenters escape from new york kurt russell Isaac Hayes, Susan Hughley, Harry Dean Stanton as Brain, and Adrian Barbeau as Maggie. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The ultimate adventure of escape and survival.
1: New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. The United States Police Force has everything under control.
0: down. I'm going
1: in. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The high adventure of the future. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The greatest escape of them all is about to blow the future apart. That's Kurt Russell finding out that Lee Van Cleef has tricked him into rescuing the president of the United States in Escape from New York, one of five new movies we'll be reviewing on sneak previews. Across the off me, Roger Ebert, film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times. And this is uh, Gene Siskel, film critic of the
0: Chicago Tribune.
1: Next, we have an ambitious adventure
0: movie named Escape from New York, made by John Carpenter, the talented young director of Halloween, which is one of the best American thrillers of the last few years. Escape from New York is set in the future in the year 1997. All of Manhattan Island has been turned into a federal maximum security prison, and a wall has been built all the way around it. The area inside is ruled by the criminal gangs, and then disaster strikes. The president's plane, Air Force One, is hijacked and crash lands in the middle of Manhattan, and the gangs take the president as hostage. In this scene, the police commissioner, played by Lee Van Cleef, offers a full pardon to a violent, newly arrived prisoner if he can bring the president out alive. Lee Van Cleef is a legendary veteran of spaghetti westerns, and that was Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. You may remember him from several Disney pictures, or he played Elvis on television. Russell sneaks into Manhattan and finds a violent world ruled by Isaac Hayes. Among the other prisoners are Adrian Barbeau and Ernest Borgnine. He plays the last of the New York cabbies, still looking for a ride in the middle of total anarchy. In this scene, Borgnine and Russell go to meet Barbeau, who may be able to lead them to the president. That's an appealing idea that, even as a prison society, New York would still have cab drivers. (laughs) There are a lot of good things in Escape from New York. The idea is good, so is the real craftsmanship of the director, John Carpenter. But I wish the situation had been explored a little more completely. I wanted to know more about that strange prisoner society on Manhattan Island. I wish the characters hadn't been played as caricatures and exaggerations. The movie turned into more of an action cartoon than a real thriller, and that's too bad.
1: Well, we have a big disagreement because I like the picture. I agree with you; it is a cartoon. I thought it always was intended to be, and I enjoyed it as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that bugged me is what you did mention, which is that I think they blew an opportunity by not giving us more about the prison society in in Manhattan. I don't know why they d- didn't do that, and instead gave us Adrienne Barbeau walking around half naked. I think she's a very poor actress, uh, but the film was very entertaining. I liked it as this comic book hero with, you know, Kurt Russell doing a great mm-hmm. imitation. I thought of Clint Eastwood. I thought it was very much fun.
0: I'm not sure that was. Kurt Russell's intention I didn't think the film was that entertaining I thought it turned into a series of chases like chases we've seen before and another thing a lot of American movies in the last couple of years even have had trouble with endings they don't know how to handle the last 15 minutes and this movie certainly doesn't the ending is very off-key and very disappointing
1: well we disagree because I thought the ending was cute and made a little tiny point
0: we split on Escape from New York Gene thought it was an exciting thriller I felt the story became too much of a caricature of itself
2: all right, well, welcome to episode 35, Escape from New York. I'm Jeff, and that is Slip. And yep. CFX is here, and we'll have to decide whether we agree with, uh, with Gene or uh, Roger Ebert uh, on this one uh, as we go. Or um, neither of them. Or, or neither of yeah, them.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's like, it, it's funny because, you know, I'm not going to make any bones about my position on this movie. I love it. But what's funny is I generally agree with Gene. That it's a good movie, but I disagree with some of his statements about things he didn't like. And then like Roger, Adrian
2: Barbeau being half naked, perhaps,
3: maybe, but I didn't think. She, I also don't think she's bad in it. Um, I don't either. And, and, and uh, you know, I mean, she's give not given much, but we'll go into that. You know, but but it's like, yeah, it's it's weird. And then of course, Ebert about the ending. I've yeah. never heard anyone say the ending to this movie was disappointing. Um, yeah. But we'll, we'll yeah. decide. We'll decide. Right. I don't know. You you know, maybe you have a different take than I do. But uh, yeah. So anyway, we'll see.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, the conceit of CFX, if you're new, is it stands for the Cultural Futures Exchange. And this is the place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, a movie today, but also music, TV, books, other cultural things. We dive into the context and the time that they came out. What's happened since and our take on a future valuation of it in terms of going long, going short, value goes up or down. You get the idea, and that is what we do here. So uh, let's talk a little bit about our personal histories with this particular film. I'll jump in here first. Um, I've probably seen this maybe six to eight times over the years, Um, perhaps more, but probably about that. I don't really remember the first time I saw it, although it was not in the theater. It was probably in the mid-'80s on videotape, or cable or something like that Um, when it's on these days uh, in recent years when I've seen it on I've definitely watched parts of it or or most of it so it's something I'm well familiar with Um, I like John Carpenter movies in general so I was laying my cards on the table the thing is great I think Um, maybe we'll do that in the future I'll have to rewatch it I haven't seen it for a while Halloween is is really good too I didn't see it when it came out at all it was it, it was a R-rated movie when I was too young. Um, But I did see it in subsequent years, and it's a classic, of course, of the the genre. Um, I remember not long after uh, the movie came out, there's a Halloween party, and one of my friend's fathers went as Snake Plissken, and I just remember him with, like, a wig and, like, the eye patch and all that, and he was very proud of himself. Um, And, I, I mean, it wasn't really that well done, the guy didn't look anything like Kurt Russell, but I just remember like, him being very proud of that he went as, as Snake. It's a cool.
3: It's a cool costume. I have a friend, we have a close friend, Barb's, more Barb's friend originally, but both of our friends now and who lives in L.A., this guy Nick, he also did it. Um, yeah. And and it was like pretty awesome. I mean, he, yeah. he really did it. He had the whole outfit and everything. He looked pretty good. But I think it's this a cool idea opposite, for a costume, especially back in the day, because Nick yeah. did it recently, you know, now snake Plissken is a cult figure. It's a cult character, but back in the day, that's, that's pretty, um, you know, ahead of the curve in a way, even if he didn't execute it very well.
2: Yeah, it was, it was, had to been like a year or so after the movie came out, it was definitely early eighties and he didn't execute it so well, one, cause he looked nothing like Kurt Russell. He had a big pot belly and, you know, all that. But it was just funny that he did it. And he he kept going around saying, I'm Snake Plissken. And, you know, <laughs> that's kind of dumb, but sort of an amusing memory. Um, Kurt Russell, obviously, we'll get into his history um, and background. He is uh, famous, of course, for having been in a lot of Disney movies as a child actor and whatnot. But one movie I want to uh, call out that few people talk about, which is actually a great movie. It's called Used Cars and he made it before um this movie and it's a comedy movie that has um you know Lenny and Squiggy in it and uh what what's his name the guy uh, something Jack Warden i think is the guy's name yeah yeah Jack Warden yeah i've yeah, seen him in a million things and a couple other folks and it, it's a it's one of those straight to video type movies but uh we used to rent it a lot in the 80s and it's very funny if you've never seen it um, definitely check it out.
3: You know, I totally forgot about this in the history. I couldn't agree more. I think Used Cars is totally a cult classic. Uh, yeah. It's it's a really good kind of dark comedy. And um, it's funny because, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I didn't really go that, we didn't go, we're not going to go that deep into Kurt Russell's history. I mean, we're mostly going to talk about the Disney stuff a little bit, but, you know, just touch on it. We'll probably go more into detail on John Carpenter himself. But yeah, I'd say, uh, used cars is something maybe we'll get to. It's a really yep. good movie. I, it was one that I didn't see till years later, but I think it's totally great. Yeah.
2: It's funny. It's really funny. Um, okay. And then lastly, I did see escape from LA, you know, in it was it the mid nineties when that came out, something like that. Um, and I've seen it maybe a couple of times since I, you know, maybe we'll cover this at some point in the future too, but it's a, it's a shadow. Of, Pro- probably uh, not
3: likely. Yeah, maybe episode. Not I always great. joke about episode 3000 or whatever, maybe, yeah. but it's just, I don't Oh, I mean, I think this we we'll talk about, we can talk about it a little bit during this, but um, because it plays into the history, but I don't know if it deserves its own show. I think uh, probably other John Carpenter movies would be better to spend our time on if we wanted to revisit this whole thing.
2: Yeah, that's probably true. Like I said, I've seen it maybe a couple times and it's not really worth re- remarking on too much. It, it ain't great, probably. Anyway, that's pretty much my history. I'll, I'll turn it over to you.
3: Yeah. So this was Jeff's idea, but I knew we were going to get to this movie eventually because I'm just going to skip to the chase. This is absolutely one of my favorite movies of all time uh it's my eval is going to be positive i can't diss this movie i love it but i will go into some of why i think it does stand the test of time kind of at the end when we wrap up i'm not going to just totally throw that out the window and i'll try to be objective but it's going to be hard because i fucking love this movie even with its yeah i think there are little flaws in it There, it's probably not perfect maybe they don't explore the prisoner world enough as cisco neighbor although i don't think that's the point i think the point is just creating a tight action movie and just getting to the action and being entertaining. I don't think it's like meant to be this exploration, you know, I, I, and I don't necessarily think that would make for a better film. I think, you know, keeping this film nice, short and sweet, uh, leaves out any kind of uh dead weight. Um, yeah. you know, as far as my history, I'm going to go a little bit into the history of the John Carpenter thing too, because I'm really a big fan of his overall, um, like a lot of people of our era, you know gen x have a real affection for this guy um obviously the first time he came on my radar was halloween and it wasn't because i saw halloween when it came out because i was nine years old i just remember it being talked about and yeah. being a big thing and you know it was a movie as we'll go into the history that did change horror movies uh for the at least the next 10 years and maybe beyond it was a huge groundbreaking film uh, absolutely legendary and i remember i was in fourth grade and i remember a couple of the kids did say they saw it you know you never know whether to believe these kids you know they were they're kind of talking big but some kids you know it's the 70s they had some drug doing parents who didn't give a shit and let them go see whatever you know just get out of my face here i'll take you i'll let you in um you know and it's i did have uh, my friend dale's mother did take us to a double feature Uh, first blood with texas chainsaw massacre in 1981 it was weird they would have these double features they play an older movie and texas chainsaw massacre like first blood i loved um but she basically just bought her tickets and left and then we went and saw it And texas chainsaw massacre kind of forever scarred me because it's a fucked up dark movie that, that makes halloween look like peewee's big adventure i mean it's I, a terrifying film
2: um, i had a similar experience though similar like that we saw um, a movie called visiting hours do you remember oh, that yeah. movie eh? yeah
3: I I, I I remember the poster it was like
2: yeah wasn't like
3: a hospital and there was like a yeah, scroll was, like in in like kind of a <laughs> tron like graphics which we'll be talking about today too um it totally
2: gave me nightmares oh probably that's similar funny to texas chainsaw. that's funny
3: um i don't even want to watch texas chainsaw again i think it's a classic, but. It's too scary for me to be honest. Uh, at any rate, but so I didn't see it. But there was talk about it, and then of course the next thing I saw, and I remember watching this as a kid because my mom was super into this. My mom's a huge Kurt Russell fan. You know, he's he's kind of hot to her or whatever. Uh, and yeah, he played him and
2: John Ritter, right?
3: Oh, John Ritter. She loved. You know, she liked them all. She liked them yeah. all. Well, <laughs> you, you talked about doing Vegas. I think Robert Urich was another guy she was into. Um, yeah. Any any handsome actor, you know, she was kind of like had her had her choices she liked um but elvis uh was a 1979 tv film directed by john carpenter i remember watching this as a kid um you know revisiting it later some of the cl- some of the production design and stuff is pretty dated you know it's very 70s doesn't look very 50s but kirk russell made for a pretty decent elvis one of the better portrayals um the thing so obviously the first movie i think i saw of john carpenter's was actually the thing it was all over <laughs> cable too. And my dad was really into this movie because it the special effects and stuff in this movie are just so insane. Um, I think they still hold up today. Uh, some of the greatest physical effects, so gross. And I remember one thing my dad really liked about it was, of course, it takes place in the Arctic. And the dogs they have are Alaskan Malamutes. And we always had Malamutes as a kid. So we yeah. had Spike and Sadie, two Malamutes. And I remember my dad was kind of creeped out by that because the malamute kind of changes into the thing at one point. It's really gross. Um, and he just said, Oh yeah, better watch out for Sadie at night, you know, you never know what's gonna happen. Uh and then of course I saw a bunch of stuff on cable and VHS around this time with John Carpenter. I eventually saw all the Halloweens, including Season of the Witch, which I think is kind of an underrated movie. Um, totally weird Halloween three sequel, but Halloween one and two, obviously Escape from New York at this time. I'd probably seen it for the first time. And uh, and then Prince of Darkness, which is kind of a lower profile one that he did um, that features a cameo by Alice Cooper. Uh, and then, of course, Starman, I remember seeing Starman it was kind of his reaction against the failure of the thing, because I think a lot of people think the thing failed because of the whole aliens E.T. thing, like like they people wanted nicer aliens. They didn't want a horror alien. Uh, so he made Starman, which is like E.T., but with Jeff Bridges as a gentle alien. My mom is a huge Jeff Bridges fan. So we went and saw this and Jeff Bridges actually nominated. We'll get into that in history. Um, Big Trouble in Little China. I believe I saw that in the theater. Still a fan of that one. Uh, They live. I saw at the Dollar Theater in 1988 when it came out. That's Rowdy, Rowdy Piper. And it's another great John Carpenter movie. Um, (laughs) Totally worth worth revisiting. I think for people, it's so fun. It also contains the longest fight scene of any film uh, in the history of film. Uh, And then in the 90s, of course, when DVDs came out, I got a DVD player. Escape was one of the first movies I bought just because I happened to see it. And I'm like, oh, I think I want to watch this again. And I would just watch it all the fucking time. You know, one of my rituals was, you know, I'd come home from work on a Friday, meet some friends for beers when I drank. I would get hammered. And then late at night, I would just turn this on. And uh, it was just something I watched over and over again. Uh, This was probably after Escape from L.A., because I think really what triggered my John Carpenter love was a movie I'll get to, a couple movies I'll get to in a minute. But Escape from L.A. was was a movie I was really excited about because I remembered liking Escape from New York. I hadn't probably seen it that many times, maybe a couple by this time. But like Jeff said, over the years, just kind of caught it, and I would watch it on cable or whatever. And I saw Escape from L.A. on opening day, and yeah, I was disappointed. I think, I think it gave me you know, I enjoyed it on a certain level, but I just knew it wasn't very good. And the CGI is absolutely terrible. You know, I think that we'll talk about the effects of this movie and whether they stand the test of time, but I don't think anybody would say that the fake waves that Peter Fonda and Kurt Russell are surfing in Escape from LA stand the test of time. I mean, we'll talk about this movie more in the history because obviously it's relevant. And then I remember seeing vampires. This was like, after I started dating my now wife, uh, we decided we were going to go see a movie on Halloween and we saw, and hap- happily John Carpenter's vampires was playing. I really love this movie too. I don't think it's a great film, but it's like, it delivered what I wanted. And that's kind of what John Carpenter movies are. They kind of give you that 90 minute action movie. That's just fun. It's got some witty dialogue and it's just entertaining. And I f- I found this movie really entertaining. So I started really getting back into him. So when *Ghost of Mars came out, I saw it immediately Um, I love that movie to this day. It's basically a remake of Assault on Precinct 13, which I saw later, but in space. Um, And they're just... Tight, entertaining movies. Later, I would see his other movies like at the, uh, you know, at um in the Mouth of Madness and all this stuff, which uh, you know is okay. There's some there's some other movies I like. Um, I don't think I've seen all his films. Like I never saw Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah, which is like his biggest bomb. Uh, most people say it's a really terrible film. I've seen it.
2: It's, it is terrible. Yeah, it's, it's
3: like him trying to get serious again, like Starman, and it, you know, with Chevy Chase of all people. Um, and then of course. You know, in the, in the 2000s, I started to kind of revisit this kind of music, you know, the John Carpenter's music. I'm surprised none of those trailers played the iconic theme, yeah, uh, you know, no, no, because no, it's such a great, memorable theme. And he was really good at that. He would just take these simple synthesizer themes and just make this memorable music. And I love the music in all of his movies. Uh, this is one of the you know, one of them that really stands out. But all of his movies have fantastic music. Um, And memorable themes. And he came out with these albums in the 2010s called Lost Themes. He's come out with three of them. And they're basically him with a band that includes his son with Adrian Barbo, Cody Carpenter. Um, And um, it's it's this music that I think the reason it came out is there was kind of a trend of new electronic musicians making like retro music, kind of Miami Vice sounding music or uh, our favorite um, Harold Faltermeyer. Right. Yeah. Those Yon uh, Yon hammer kind of imitating that 80s. And it's called either outrun or retro wave. And I got super into a bunch of these artists. I actually saw one guy perturbator in concert and it was pretty boring because it's just a guy at a computer pumping his fist, but it's like, he's <laughs> playing like eighties action music. You know, it's basically eighties yeah, action twiddler. movies. Um, and yeah, basic knob twiddling. Um, but John Carpenter, I've seen twice. So he's gone on tour uh, a few times in July of 2016. I saw him at the Fox theater of Oakland and he played mostly stuff from the lost themes albums, which are basically like their lost themes with their new songs that sound like this old music. Um, and he played some of the sound soundtrack songs like mm-hmm. escape from New York. And it's funny because he's up front just dancing and it's really <laughs> funny to see him dance. Like he's doing this old guy kind of groove, moving and grooving. Um, And then they, they played again at the work. Was it better than Billy Squire though? Uh I don't know if he could, you know, he's an older guy, so I don't think he could do quite all that, those gyrations. Um, okay. And he didn't take off any, any garments or anything. Okay, And he Good. wasn't wearing any kind of, you know jennifer beal's flash dance off pink the shoulder halter pink halter yeah. tops and things okay. um, he was all dressed in black the whole band was dressed in black and the next one they did was really cool it's called they released a compilation of a lot of the famous themes of his movies over the years called anthology and he did the anthology tour and the whole tour the whole concert was he would play the music and then they would just show scenes from the movies in the back that was super cool um so anyway, yeah, I'm just really into the music. I have all his Lost Themes records. I have uh, a couple of the soundtracks to the movies on vinyl. I listen to them all the time. You know, we're playing a board game or putting together a Lego thing, which is something me and my wife like to do, I'll just put that shit on. It's super. Like I don't know. I just I just really enjoy it. But this past week, it's funny because I watched this movie two and a half times. Uh, one of them was on Prime, and of course, the Prime ran out. So yeah, I, I warned you though, too. didn't You I? warned me, but I was just busy and, you know, it's, yeah. it's been kind of crazy at work and stuff. So I didn't get to it. So I got to it and I watched about half of it. Um, and then the next day it was gone. Um, so I've just said, fuck it. I'm going to order the Blu-ray because I want, uh, Part of it was I started listening to this podcast called The Projection Booth, and I didn't listen to the whole thing. It's like a three-hour podcast. These guys are really going depth on this movie, probably more than we will. And they have they've actually interviewed some of the some of the cast members and the crew. Uh, you know, it's very in depth. But I didn't want to listen to it because once I listened to it and heard some of their insights, I just thought I'm going to end up stealing everything they say. So I kind of stopped. Their um,
2: interviews were not really that good. One of the I didn't get I, to the interviews. I stopped
3: listening to it because I was worried. Uh, some of their some of the comments i am going to use one of the things they brought up that's funny that i never noticed but yeah i just didn't want to be too influenced by it so they
2: interviewed adrian barbeau and she's mostly talking about emptying her dishwasher it's bizarre
3: uh, okay well you know who knows so anyway i decided to get the blu-ray and i there's also some missing scenes but i didn't end up watching those we'll talk about those uh but the blu-ray includes uh once they were talking about the John Carpenter and Kurt Russell commentary, I had to hear that. So I decided to order the Blu-ray It came in a couple of days. I watched it with the commentary on, but then I realized a lot of my notes were not about the story and the dialogue because you can't hear the dialogue. So I just had to watch it again and made notes. That's what we'll, that's where the walkthrough came from, but you know what? I was never bored watching it two and a half times, like in quick succession. I still love it. And I could probably watch it again right now and would be into it. So, I mean, that, that goes a long way to saying what I think about this movie and why I like it so much. So now let's jump into the summary. Yeah. Uh, so the summary, I'm again, as I mentioned, so one thing I want to say is a disclaimer. So we said this at commando too, uh, you know, when we did the commando walkthrough, cause we really t- tell you the whole movie. And so what I'm going to say for this movie is really, if you haven't seen us or haven't seen it in a while, just turn this off and go watch it because this movie is deserves your time. I, I, I think with commando, we said that too. But, you know, we didn't maybe emphasize it that much because, frankly, I just think this movie's way better than Commando. So I don't I don't give as much of a shit about Commando, even though I enjoy Commando. I think you could get as much out of listening to the podcast and then watching Commando. But I think with this one, I would advise you to go watch it first. That's up to you. But you've been warned. Spoiler, Spoiler alert to the max. We are going to completely spoil every single aspect of this film now. Yeah. Now. As far as the premise, I think the movie trailer does a really good job of telling you what the premise is. But just as a refresher, uh, you know, we're in the near future, 1997 <laughs> at the time. You know, the movie was made <laughs> in 81, so 1997. Uh, the crime rate in the United States is so high, you know, uh, uh, increased by 400% in 1988, that the entire island of Manhattan has been made into a prison. Uh, that
2: I, I just got to say, like, maybe you would pick lower value real estate to make a prison out of wouldn't you i think the reason they picked it though is because it's an island
3: right like you could pick long island i guess but the thing is it's not as interesting right the idea of manhattan is it's you know such a landmark city i
1: mean I,
2: i get it it's just it occurred to me it's like wow like maybe you would pick like a
1: Know, someplace, in,
2: or yeah. someplace in mississippi or something where the land is cheap i don't know all
3: right right anyway. i think that that it was easier to secure that's kind of why yeah. and it's kind of fun you know um yeah. but anyway all the inmates uh, once you go in you never come out and you know there's no rules or anything all the inmates basically Look, just make lord their the life flies. right kind, kind of lord of you. the flies uh the prison is guarded by the united states police force so the police force is now U- the U S police force. So we're pretty much dealing with a fascist government. It's implied in many scenes in this movie, as we'll talk about. Um, and unfortunately, uh, air force one has been hijacked by terrorists and has just crashed into New York city with the president on it. And the president is now trapped there with a cassette tape that can possibly save a world on the brink of total war, just the, mm. what's on this tape. And it turns out it's the discovery of nuclear fusion. Uh, but time is,
2: which I will talk about in, in some detail later on about cool. how silly that is. Yes. But
3: time is crucial due to an important summit that has to that is is about to occur in one day, and it's sort of a last chance to broker peace. At the same time, at the exact same time, interestingly enough, famous criminal and former special ops soldier Snake Pliskin is just about to be interned in this prison. With few options, police commissioner Bob Hawke thinks Pliskin has just the right expertise to extract the president on time. So that's a premise, but okay. we're going to go into the plot in detail. So that's the premise of the film. Now, as far as the cast and characters, I don't know if you want to do any of these or you want me just to continue.
2: I mean, I, I can I can cover some of these. And so, you know, you have Snake Plissken, of course, right. uh, played by Kurt Russell. Who's the ex special ops uh, soldier who turned to a life of crime and was arrested uh, for trying to rob the Federal Reserve? Which, oddly, and we'll talk about—I'll talk about this in, in particular—is not uh, that crime that robbery is was originally supposed to be in the movie. They filmed scenes from it, and it's not in the movie, and and that's that's kind of weird. Yeah, we'll um, talk about
3: that when we go through the plot. We'll talk about how Snake is introduced and how that would have been different with those scenes.
2: Exactly. Bob Hauk is played by Lee Van Cleef, um, who's like a tough-talking police commissioner type, has a military background as well, and manages the rescue operation from Liberty Island. Um, he and Snake have a love-hate relationship, but maybe in the same way that, uh, you know, uh, the Freddie Mercury character loved Matrix in Commando. Yeah. Houck might love uh, in a similar uh, uh, way there. Bennett is the guy's name from Commando. Anyway. Yeah. How loves snakes. Snake doesn't really like how that much. And we'll get, we'll get into, we'll get into that. Uh, Captain Remy. Remy is Tom Atkins. You've seen him in a million things. Including
3: the fog John Carpenter film and Halloween season of the witch Halloween three.
2: Yep. And you've seen him in a hundred other things. He's a character actor. He's all over the place. Um, He's a subordinate of uh, how he's responsible for reporting the situation with air force one debriefing uh, Plisskin on things going on. You have uh, the president, John Harker, played by Donald Pleasance, Uh the president of the United States. Uh, he's British. He doesn't hide that he's British. The actor is, the character is. And we can talk about what the background of that is. It's sort of interesting. Um, but it's also indicating that things aren't what you see. It may see because we have a British uh, uh, president of the United States um, that's telling you something kind of along the lines of uh, the, the clocks were striking 13 in uh, 1984.
3: famous And, and who's, who's to say if there is an England in this world? We don't even right. know if the we U.S. might that. have right. taken over all of Europe. It might. I mean, it seems like a dystopic future, so it could be like an Oceania type thing, like 1984. Right. So yep. anyway.
2: Exactly. Um, the Duke of New York, of, of course, played by Isaac Hayes. He is the sort of ruler of the prison who kidnaps the president after he crashed lands on Manhattan. And they use him as a a bargaining chip in hoping to uh, plot their escape from Manhattan. You have Cabby, played by Ernest Borgnine. Um, He's the first uh, character that Snake meets inside the prison. He's a cab driver. And he's been driving a cab in Manhattan for 30 years, according to him. So whether he is a prisoner or just a long-term resident, we'll get into. Um, Everybody knows. uh, He knows everybody. You know, he knows everything that's going on. And he also informs Snake that the Duke has kidnapped uh, the president. We have uh, Harold Hellman, uh, a.k.a. Brain, uh, played by Harry Dean Stanton. He is a former uh, crime partner of Pliskin and an inmate, of course, at the uh, prison there. And he uses his uh, scientific knowledge to somehow make steam into gas for the Duke, um, which we'll explore a little bit about that being a little ridiculous but anyway (laughs) he is very clever at staying alive he's a survivor he does what he needs to do to kind of get along we have um, Maggie who's played by Adrian Barbeau um, who was originally provided to Brain by the Duke as a gift for his services but um, she has pretty much come to have an affection for Brain and love him and is protective of him we have uh, Maggie's boobs uh, played Uh, by Jeff's edition I just (laughs) saw I'm just seeing this for the first time uh, played by Adrian Barbeau's boobs, uh, they feature prominently throughout the movie and are breakthrough stars of the film. Um, and surprised that Gene Siskel didn't have more appreciation for them, frankly, knowing Gene Siskel and his uh, gruff. Uh, what was it? The gruff? Uh, uh, oh, the yeah. The, the, uh,
3: yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was he was he was really wanting meatballs to be more sexual.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So h- him dissing Adrian Barbeau for being half naked here does not seem to be in character, but we'll, we'll get into that. And we have uh, finally Romero, who is played by uh, Frank Doubleday and one of the best characters of this movie, in my opinion. Yes, um, amazing of, performance. Uh, amazing performance. One of Duke's crazier henchmen. And um, he, he he has a lot of famous scenes in the movie, including in the very beginning where he is um, letting Hauk know that the he ha- they have the president gives him. Well, we'll get into how he lets him know that. But anyway, great a great character of the film and and a hugely amazing performance by Frank Doubleday. So we should note
3: that. that he is named. There are two characters named after other uh, filmmakers of the same genre as uh, you know the kind of sci-fi horror genre. Uh, he's named after George Romero. So um, and of course, he is kind of a punker. And we'll talk a little bit about that because this is the early 80s. And whenever you have a post-apocalyptic film, you got to have some punkers in there. Um, So he's kind of that. But yeah, he's got a really incredible look. I mean, it's iconic and his performance is really cool. And he kind of yeah, at the beginning, he sort of is the representative of the Duke. Uh, in negotiating, if you could call it that, with with Hal, uh, we'll get into that in the plot. So let's go to the Zeitgeist. So the first thing I thought of when I thought of this movie was the whole state of New York at this time, right? You know, you had New York had was kind of on at its worst, right? I mean, back in the seventies, cr- the crime rate in New York, you had Son of Sam, you had, you know, this movie, the way it depicts New York, like has. Burned out buildings. It's all devastated and destroyed. There are parts of the Bronx that looked like that in this time. They looked like a post nuclear wasteland. Uh, You know, not not probably Manhattan as much, although there are some tough parts of Manhattan as well. But you had a lot of chaos in New York in the late seventies. You had New York having to file for bankruptcy. You had a blackout in the seventies that caused all kinds of riot rioting. Um, and the crime rate was really bad in New York. Right. And so you even had like a, you know, vigilantes like Bernard gets around this time, maybe a little after this, uh, a little you know, after, yeah. yeah, but kind of goes to show you the, you know, kind of how, what New York was like. And this was kind of a reflection of that, even though, interestingly enough, the movie was written much earlier. Um, and then of course the, the, the movie that really, this reminds me more of, than any other movie, even though it's not a story of the future, but of the present is the warriors and the warriors is another movie that takes place mostly at night. And it's very similar depiction of New York as just riddled with gangs. And it's kind of chaotic and, you know, it's also about escaping, right? In this case, to Coney Island. So it's very similar. Another one of my favorites watched it many times. We may get to it at some point. Uh, this movie is also the zeitgeist of this movie is a distrust of authority. We see that in the character of Snake uh, and his reaction to um, uh, And this is definitely influenced by Richard Nixon and the country's opinion of Nixon's Watergate scandal. And that's when this screenplay was originally written. That's what it was a reaction to. Uh, the, the depiction of the president is not favorable uh, in this movie in general. Um, and so that's one of the other influences. The other influence, of course, as you have snake is a very much an anti-hero. We'll talk about certain scenes where snake does not do good. (laughs) He he actually could be a complete hero, but he doesn't do that. And of course the ending of the film is the ultimate anti-hero, uh, just act of destruction that you could think of. I don't know what, what, what Ebert was smoking. If he didn't think this ending was a great ending, we'll get to the ending. Uh, but I, you know, I think of him as kind of a grizzled, you know, very capable, very athletic action hero, someone like Batman as maybe depicted in, in the dark Knight, the original comic, Frank Miller, uh, dirty Harry, right. We talk, you know, we, um, heard that Siskel and Ebert talk about uh, Kurt Russell's performance and how influenced it is by Clint Eastwood's vocal delivery. And it's completely true. I mean, yeah. he's straight, dirty, Harry, and dirty Harry is a similar anti-hero, right? He doesn't care well, about the authority figures. And yeah, in it's not movie. just,
2: um, sorry, it's not just dirty Harry. I think it's the Clint Eastwood Westerns too, right? Which is where uh, Lee Van Cleef came from. Too, I yeah think yeah it's the that, spaghetti
3: western character yeah. the man with no name they call yeah, him and yeah. it's and but in those movies he doesn't even talk almost at all like he's right. even more laconic than kurt russell i i agree with you but i think dirty harry it's so similar like yeah it's it's like one-liners it's like distrust of the you know the cops are trying to rein dirty harry in. hawk is trying to get you know, uh, snake to do, do good for, for the country and all this. And snake could give a shit. He's completely done. And I agree with you though. I'm not disagreeing. I'd say they're both. And then, and then Charles Bronson, and we'll talk more about him in the history of the film. Uh, Carpenter said at the time that the death wish film, the original film death wish Michael Winters film was, was an influence, right? Because that is a vigilante story of the crime in New York, right? And uh Charles Bronson, the character he plays, Paul kersey you know, is sort of like this mild mannered guy who becomes like a, you know, a vengeful character who who gets justice with a gun. Um, and then of course, a little bit of Han Solo, you know, maybe yeah. a little bit with the with the kind of patch, you know, and the kind of uh air of coolness, um, even though I think he's a much darker character than Han Solo ever gets. Um, but I would say a little bit of influence there. Um, and I think Kurt Russell did did audition for Han Solo. I, I think he wanted to be one of the guys. I don't remember if he was one of the guys or not. I know Nick Nolte was, which was really funny. But um, OK, so the other thing is, of course, this is a post-apocalyptic film. It's dystopian science fiction. Right. And that has a tradition that goes way back. And I actually found this article that goes through the history and they talk about this Dutch film from 1916, a silent film called The End of the World that was actually based on the real mania that people went through after... The appearance of Halley's Comet in 1910, because every time Halley's Comet comes around, people, you know, you have like the Heaven's Gate people and you have these people who think it's the end of the world, the sign of the end of the world. So there were actually riots and stuff. So this movie actually depicts some of the stuff that you see in this kind of film, looting and riots and things all the way back in 1916. And then, of course, in the 50s, you have The Last Man on Earth, which was the first adaptation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, uh, starring Vincent Price. You have On the Beach, which is a post-nuclear uh, movie. And then you have War of the Worlds, right, when Mars attacks and it's just destruction and the human race barely struggling to survive. 1960s, you have Planet of the Apes. You have especially influential on a, one particular scene in this movie, The Night of the Living Dead, Um And again, that's another, we'll talk more about nighttime movies. That's one of those. Um, And then in the 70s, you have the uh, next adaptation of I Am Legend, Omega Man with uh, um, uh, Charlton Heston. And of course, Soylent Green is another one with Charlton Heston about a dystopic future where people are starving. So they make this food out of dead people uh, to feed everyone great movie. A Boy and His Dog with uh, Don Johnson, really weird kind of dystopic sci-fi post-apocalyptic film. Uh, Johnson, Dawn of the Dead, of course, even more apocalyptic than Night of the Living Dead, bigger scale, another Romero film. And I threw in Logan's Run here just because Logan's Run is another escape film uh, trying to escape even though it's a very different looking and look and feel than this movie. And you can't talk about post-apocalypse without talking about the most kind of high profile post-apocalyptic series of all time. The Mad Max movies, Mad Max was in 79, probably an influence on some of the ideas in this movie. Definitely the punk influences there. Road Warrior would follow. And of course, you know, they would be making movies all the way up till Fury Road. Um, and then you have one thing I was looking for was movies that take place mostly at night, because this movie is almost all at night. It's one night. And there are scenes of day at the end of the film. And it's actually weird because the day seems really short. It's it's uh, we'll talk about that because it's like it's almost like it's really long night, then a really short day. And then it's night again. Yeah. Um But we'll talk about that. So Night of Living Dead takes place over a single night. American Graffiti, very different type of film, very different tone, takes place over a single night. Um, Taxi Driver has, my wife pointed this out to me and it's true. It has a lot of scenes during the day as well, but it feels like a night movie. It feels like an urban night movie to me and the most kind of dark scenes take place at night, even though there's, you know, scenes of him interacting with Sybil Shepard, et cetera, during the day. It's also reminds Lots me of, of the,
2: couples come to movies like
3: this. Exactly. It's 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 a bleak film and it's kind of a new, very New York film, too. So I kind of put it in here. The Warriors, again, takes place over a single night, ends at at sunrise. And then you have movies that were, were after this, but are kind of the same thing that are part of the same zeitgeist. Blade Runner comes to mind whole movie is dark, right? Uh, After Hours, Martin Scorsese's kind of overlooked classic that I, one of my favorite movies ever, um, that takes place over a single night in Greenwich Village. Uh, All the Batman movies have this. They're almost all dark. Um, Die Hard takes place over a single night as well. Uh, Dark City was a kind of low profile movie in the late 90s, very influenced by Blade Runner, and then Attack the Block. Maybe a lot of people don't know what that is. It's kind of a British zombie alien film, really entertaining in the 2010s. And then I'm going to say one movie that really, I think, reminds me of this, especially the special effects, the kind of wireframe animations that were not done by computer in either movie is Tron. There's mm-hmm. definitely some, some of the visuals remind me of Tron, which came around at the same time. So Was
2: it Lost in Translation over One Night, too?
3: Yeah, Lost in Translation. Good one. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. another one. Very it's all the scenes with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson are all them walking around Tokyo at night and it just takes place over a single night. Um, Okay. John Carpenter background real quick. We should go into him and then we'll go into the kind of production of the film. And then we'll get to the meat of the podcast, which is our walkthrough, right? So John Carpenter born in Carthage, New York, January of 1948, his family moved when he was very young to Bowling Green, Kentucky. Now, as a kid, he was very influenced by Western. So Jeff mentioned the influence of the spaghetti Westerns. Um, of course, those weren't out yet. So John Carpenter mainly was influenced by the Westerns of John Ford, as were all filmmakers, and especially the films of Howard Hawks, um, because he would essentially remake Rio Bravo in a way with Assault on Precinct 13. And he would actually remake Hawks's film The Thing it, w- with his The Thing, right? Um, He attended Western Kentucky University originally, then USC Film School, but he dropped out in 1968 to make films. Um, In 69, he made a movie called Captain Voyeur, which is an early short uh, that I have never seen, but it supposedly has a lot of the elements that would later resurface in Halloween. Uh, In 1970, he did the screenplay, composed the music, and co-edited The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, which was a short film that won the Oscar that year for Best Live Action Short. His first film was in 1970.
2: Is that the one that had Linda Carter in it? No. no. What, what am I thinking of? Something, some movie you were telling me about her, where you are saying that I'd be interested in Yeah, that's in the it. one with Marjo Mar- Gordner, it.
3: where it's like there's nude scenes. That's much later. Yeah. And I forget, that's ah, going to kill me. I forget the name of the movie. But All it's right. something like that title. Yeah. <laughs> you know, It's very like All the ballad of whatever, you know. Yeah,
2: okay. There I almost want
3: to say, you know, uh, I don't know, Legend of Billy Jean, but it's not that yeah, obviously. It's, not that. Um, it's something like that. It's like it's something some name. but anyway, um yeah, if you want to look it up, you could look it up. but that's that's a that's a different film and it's much later. But his first actual feature film was a an independent production called Dark Star, which is like a black sci-fi comedy. And it was directed by him, but he co-wrote it with a guy named Dan O'Banion. And Dan O'Banion would become more well-known as one of the special effects whizzes on Star Wars, but even more well-known than that for creating Alien. He he, Essentially, Alien was his idea. Um, The film Alien, which is another great sci-fi classic um 1976 he directed assault on precinct 13 this was the first movie to be co-produced by producer deborah hill who would work with him throughout his career um it wasn't it's a, a he, siege he film was
2: married to her like with her before adrian barboa oh think. really oh yeah. that makes sense he yeah. um
3: you know this was a siege film and it was very influenced by as i mentioned howard hawks's film rio bravo and it, at the time, it wasn't very well received, but it's been reappraised. And I, I can attest, this is a great movie, a super dark action film, super entertaining and super influential. Even on John Carpenter himself, he would make this movie a few more times. Like Ghost of Mars is basically a sci-fi remake of this movie. Um, 1978 was a busy year for him. He made a TV movie with Lauren Hutton called Someone's Watching Me, um, which also featured Adrian Barbeau. And he met her on this film and they got married. So he was married to her when Escape from New York was created. Um, Original story. um, He also created the original story for the thriller, The Eyes of Laura Mars, which I saw years ago. And then, of course, his biggest achievement probably ever. It was Bobby Joe and the Outlaw. Bobby Joe and the Outlaw. There you go. Um, So his biggest achievement of all time was Halloween. Uh, This is his biggest, most successful movie You know, it's funny. We talked about Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Everybody, of course. (laughs) This is like John Carpenter's everything, right? All his films at at a certain point, and I believe it was The Thing, was the first one, where it was John Carpenter's The Thing, and then it just became John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, you know, John Carpenter's Memoirs of an Invisible Man, or maybe that one doesn't have John Carpenter's because he probably didn't want it to be known that it was his. But anyway, this movie was an absolute blockbuster. It changed horror films. It ended up creating and influencing the whole Friday the 13th series, Nightmare on Elm Street, the whole idea of the killer, uh, that kind of comes back and doesn't die. Uh, and it was originally influenced by, uh, Bob Clark's 1974 film, Black Christmas, which was the first film to really kind of be this, um, serial killer horror film. Uh, but, and originally, I think John Carpenter wanted to write a sequel to that and do it. But what he ended up doing was creating his own film. It had a very low budget, 325 k but it made fucking $70 million. Wow. So that's kind of why John Carpenter could kind of do whatever the hell he
2: wanted for a few years. Um, was it the same Bob Clark who made Porky's?
3: Yes, it is. Yeah. It's the same guy. He's He, actually, he also directed A Christmas Story. Mm. Very crazy. Yeah. Very, very interesting director. Uh, A lot of interesting films and very different. In 1979, he met up with Kurt Russell for the first time and they made the TV movie about Elvis, which was nominated for a bunch of Emmys. Very critically acclaimed. He also uh, did the music and produced Halloween, 2, Did not direct it, although I supposedly he directed some scenes uncredited. In 1980, he made another horror film I love called The Fog. And of course, this featured Adrian Barbeau and Tom Atkins from this film. That was also a huge hit. And then finally, we get to 1981 with Escape from New York. So I'll go into a little uh, Carpenter's career after this, but we're going to dive into this movie a bit. So fun Kurt Russell fact, right? So um, Kurt Russell, as Jeff mentioned, he was mainly known at this time, you know, besides the Elvis role. And Maybe a few people saw used cars. It wasn't a big hit um, for being in Disney films. And the funny thing is, as a, he was a child actor, but before he got into Disney, uh, supposedly the last thing Walt Disney ever wrote down before his death were the words Kurt and Russell. So he had the idea of, of uh, using Kurt Russell as a, as a star for Disney films before he died.
2: You know what the, the second to last thing he wrote down was? what was it i hate commie pinkos
3: because oh. he was
2: he was like a big house in, an american activity uh, uh,
3: i think dude. he also might have wrote i hate jews because supposedly he's really anti-semitic too but yeah. I, I don't know i don't know i've heard he's very anti-semitic or was it that's a rumor I, that disney would love to quash i'm sure um yeah uh, I,
2: I i don't know if that's the case but he yeah. definitely was involved with the uh anti uh you know communist stuff for sure so
3: okay well whatever to Walt Disney I'm sure we'll get to him later we'll do a more yeah. in-depth dive because we've got to cover some kind of Disney thing. Uh you know and Kurt maybe it'll be these movies because Russell he eventually would go on to become the most successful star for Disney in the late 60s and early 70s with great films such as The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes and one that I saw as a kid and I loved and I would love to revisit The Strongest Man in the World, which is super yeah. entertaining and silly. So as far as the movie goes, um, this was originally, according to the the DVD um, audio commentary, this was originally written in 1974, but Wikipedia has it as 1976. So maybe it was conceived in 1974 and touched up in 76. Not sure it was inspired by Nixon in the original Death Wish film, as I mentioned. Um, The studio originally wanted Tommy Lee Jones or Charles Bronson for the role of Snake Plissken, uh, but Carpenter worried he'd lose creative control by casting a big star like that. So he went with Russell, took a big chance on him because he wasn't really well-known. And Russell, you know, ended up going through this strict training and diet regimen for four months to get Super Jack to play Snake lost 20 pounds, et cetera. Um, and the screenplay, I think this was later, uh, was kind of touched up or co-written a bit more with Nick Castle. Um, and Nick Castle is mainly known at the time for being the shape. They used to call him the shape until they started referring to him as Michael Myers, uh, in Halloween. And, uh, he, I think, was responsible for some of the humor. Maybe so. There's a, of course, a recurring joke in this film that we'll be mentioning a lot that I think maybe Nick Castle had contributed that. Um, Deborah Hill produced Joe Alves was the production designer, and we'll talk a lot about him because I think he was a, a huge key part of making this movie what it is. And then of course, a young James Cameron worked on this film. He worked as a director of photography and also on special effects. He painted a oh, lot wow. of the map paintings that are used. Yeah. Like that scene toward the end of the movie where the helicopter's flying in during the day, all those buildings in the background of that field where, you know, the the um, Duke's men are kind of calling yeah. the helicopter in to get the briefcase. We'll talk about that. That is a map painting. And I was like, whoa, that looks fucking good. Yeah, It's like, but anyway, James Cameron painted a lot of those. Talented dude. Um, so Alves didn't want to film in New York for obvious reasons, right? Because you're trying to picture New York as a wasteland and obviously New York has just lit up like a Christmas tree um so they chose east st louis illinois so this was a part of st louis that was more of kind of the ghetto and there had been a major fire there in 1976 so some of the neighborhoods were still deserted and still just devastated um so they used this it looks like part but i like as i mentioned in in the in the zeitgeist parts of new york look like this too i mean just broken down buildings and just complete wasteland so it was fitting uh they use the also this train station that had been abandoned, uh, called union station as the Duke's own base. And this is pretty amazing when we get to those scenes we'll, we'll call those out because the whole, all the scenes in the Duke's uh, kind of headquarters are all filmed in this real place. That looks pretty amazing. Uh, they also, you know, use the Fox theater, which we'll get to when that comes up, which was, has since been restored. This was also in East St. Louis. And then, um, They also use the internals of the, uh, for some of the kind of, um, I think it was the, the inside of the world trade center, uh, Mm. which is all graffitied and, and, and screwed up was the Wiltern theater, which would later be restored and is still now a concert venue. But it, during this time in 1981, it was completely abandoned. Um, and then they also other locations were the Sepulveda dam in LA. Uh, and then, uh, some other studio locations in LA. And then of course, they Liberty Island, right? We see the Statue of Liberty at the beginning. That's where the US police force force's main base is. And fun fact, this was the first film ever allowed to film there. Uh, the film was shot from August to, to November of 1980. Uh, Carpenter and his crew were able to persuade the city of East St. Louis to turn off huge sections of the city's power for hours on end <laughs> so that they could, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so that they could film without lights um and then uh you know obviously we'll talk to how the residents thought of that you know yeah well they're poor so who gives a shit right Uh, (laughs) that's what it seems like to me because i'm like there probably were still people living there but just like fuck why is my power off oh it's like the government made some backroom deal with the hollywood crew
2: that's gotta yeah, yeah
3: not good probably not good um and you know, we'll get to more specifics. We'll call them out as, as we walk through. And then of course, uh, Carpenter and sound designer, Alan Howarth did the music. And obviously the main theme is a, as a true highlight of the film, completely memorable. Um, I remember my friend, Bob, he used to have a band count Dante and the black dragon fighting society. They would play this. They would sometimes open up their shows by playing this and he would play the main melody on his bass. It was pretty cool. Um, and then, uh, let's see the it was recorded. The music was, uh, you know, all synthesizers. So they used an ARP, a profit five cents. And then of course the Lynn drum machine, which is the quintessential eighties drum machine. Um, now the reception to the film was positive. Most of the reviews were positive. Um, so most people were on the side of Cisco rather than Ebert there. Um, it was a big hit budget was 5 million box office, 25 million, um, it was really, I think, the last major hit Carpenter had, although he would have a few other movies be profitable. Um, and then, uh, then post Escape from New York, obviously he follows this up with The Thing, which, as we mentioned, is probably his most critically acclaimed film other than Halloween now. But at the time, it was a huge, huge bomb. Uh, and it uh, I think a lot of people... As I mentioned, we're not ready for this movie after E.T. They were not ready for a horror film. And it's a very dark film. Um, And the special effects are pretty gross. 1983, he did a kind of to make up for this loss. He did a kind of a quick movie of Christine. Not a bad movie. I've seen it. Um, I saw it on HBO back in the day. uh, An adaptation of Stephen King's book. And this was profitable. It did make some money. 1984, Starman wasn't profitable, but as I mentioned, it was critically acclaimed. Bridges nominated for Best Actor. 1985, Prince of Darkness actually made money. I thought this was a bomb. I remember seeing it, and it's not one of my favorites by him, but it, it was made for $3 million. It made $17 million. I mean, that's about as good as this movie did. Um, 1988, They Live, again, similarly profitable, uh, the Rowdy Rowdy Piper vehicle. Uh, 1992, Memoirs of Invisible Man. Uh, his highest budget movie up to that point was a massive failure. I mean, a really massive failure. In 1995, he did *In the Mouth of Madness*, the kind of HP Lovecraft uh, slash Stephen King style thriller, was not a hit. Uh, 1996, *Escape from LA*. So this, so in 1981, he made *Escape from New York* for five million, and in, in 1996, he made *Escape from LA* for fifty million. And it doesn't look like a $50 million movie. It looks like a fucking $5 million movie. Yeah. It's like the worst CGI ever, but he spent so much money on it. It only made half back half that 25. Um, now I'm not going to go into the rest of his films. Uh, really? Uh, you know, I love ghosts of uh, ghosts of Mars, but after that, he hasn't really done a whole lot. He did the masters of horror and produced a few things. I never saw his movie, the war. That was his last film. But I will say that there have been constant rumors of a remake of this film, uh, most recently starring Gerard Butler. Uh, I'm not looking forward to that. I don't think this is remakable. And then also rumors of a TV show, which I think wouldn't be. Why? Just
2: stop. Just leave it be. yeah, Yeah, I
3: know. Leave it be. But you know how Hollywood is. And it's even now, you know, because of the venture capital crisis and all this, like I have friends in the creative business, you know, my cousin Greg. And he says that all these companies are just even worse about remaking shit because they're so risk averse. They don't want to use new ideas. So it's like, I have a feeling we're going to see this, especially after the last of us, which I'll talk about in my kind of end statement is so big. I think people are looking for post-apocalyptic shit. And I think we're going to see it as a shitty escape from New York TV show. If it's good, fine. But you know, I'd rather see that than a remake of the film, because I just don't think we need a remake with like fucking Jason Statham or whoever. I mean, dude, my idea is like, just take the Fast and Furious movie, have Vin Diesel go into a coma and wake up in a fucking post-apocalyptic world because you might as well do that because they just keep remaking the same movie. Just make that. Don't remake this. Like, don't fuck with this. But there's a bunch of comic books too. And um, there's a bunch of comic books too of this. And there's all these different escape stories like Escape from Miami I think Escape from Florida would be a pretty badass movie, <laughs> and you could just say the ruler is Desantis, and it's like this arch conservative like uh, dystopia. But then there's also you have all the crazy drug dealers and crazy scammers in Florida. It would be pretty badass. Yeah. Um.
2: Anyway, so that's the state of things as they stand. So not to mention the orange uh, swamp thing that lives there.
3: Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Yeah, it was Escape from Mar-a-Lago with zombies. I don't know. They could do something like that. But anyway, um, let's just jump into the walkthrough. So, you know, the movie opens, right? And the fun thing about this is we get a narration, right? And you heard it in the trailer, right? 1988, the crime rate is up 400%. Uh, It's so bad that um, the United States police force uh, builds a containment wall around Manhattan, Uh, The bridges and waterways are all mined and U.S. police force soldiers patrol the, you know, patrol the border and their constant helicopter surveillance. Um, The fun thing is the voice doing this narration is Jamie Lee Curtis. So that was something I did not know before. I didn't either. Uh, Yeah, I didn't either. Okay. And then you get a lot of graphics, right? These, they they look kind of like vector graphics, uh, wireframe animation. They're all just animation. There's no computers used in this movie
2: at all. Which they which is so weird because they look like Battle Yeah, you know they totally look like
3: they totally look like Battle or even like that kind of Atari uh yeah. v, you know visual. And it, it's funny, they it's just computer graphics, even at this time, were pretty expensive. And yeah, they kind of remind me of some stuff on the Apple IIe and all that stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's funny. Uh of course, we show Liberty Island and this, this is really cool because the, the way that it opens up and the way they would do this technically is they would they would show a set like Liberty Island and then they would cut to like a black screen and then pull up and then they would be in another location. And in this case, the main base is mostly f- filmed in the Sepulveda base. And that's like where the bus pulls up and all this stuff, right? Um, and the funny thing too is uh, we get a lot of economical, what I call economical storytelling where- A lot of things are happening at once and a lot of exposition is kind of done through storytelling um, so that we can get to the point, right? There's this movie requires a lot of exposition, right? You have all that exposition at the beginning about the present day and the, you know, the U.S. police force and all that stuff. So they do a lot of that by kind of cramming a lot of things together to make it quicker. And, you know, you could argue that this is sort of a flaw, too, because there's a lot of things that happen at once that would never happen at once. But one thing they we do see is two guys on a raft, you know, so we've been, ex- we've explained that the waterways are guarded. and we see two guys trying to escape on a makeshift raft um, and they're warned to turn back. And of course they're, killed anyway. They, it
2: seems like they're trying to turn back. They just blow yeah. them up anyway. It's pretty funny. Well, they funny. didn't really have a control over the tides. You couldn't really tell what direction they were going. Yeah, they were paddling they're getting... with their hands. Yeah. And it's like this yeah.
3: shitty raft put together with who knows what. You know, It's like they had no control. Um, and then we see a bus arrive, uh, and we see police escorting uh, Pliskin into the facility, and right at this time, a voice says, you have the option to terminate by being cremated as if, you know, uh, it's so bad, right? That you would yeah, want to it's die. it's
2: interesting. It's a, it's kind of like, I thought it was kind of an interesting touch. Like, you know, this it's just a good plot point. You know, it's a good exposition. Like, this place is so bad. Most people would choose to kill themselves now. Right, right. Exactly,
3: exactly. Them. It sets it up nicely. Now, there was an original scene. Did you watch any of this
2: footage? Uh, of I know I didn't. No, but I heard about it, and like one of the things that didn't make sense to me, um, and we'll get into um, a little bit, is how all of, like Pliskin is is made out to be like the the biggest arch criminal of all time, almost um, in in the movie. And there was a see, a, you know, the reason that he's in his prison um, that you'll, you'll get into, I think, is that he you know, we we talked about that in the opening is that. He uh, was robbing the Federal Reserve. And there was a whole scene where that robbery was taking place and he made an escape on a train, which is, doesn't seem like a good th- way to make an escape from a robbery on a train. Anyway. Yeah, that- it's good that it was cut. I think it's As good. good was cut, but it's weird. It, but there's gaps in the plot almost that they have to make up for because it was, it seems like.
3: Well, you should bring those up when we get to them, because yeah. I actually think it's better that Snake is a mystery and that we don't actually know. We know he tried to do something very ambitious and we know he failed. But if they show how he failed, it kind of makes him less interesting. And I kind of like that we don't know, like we never find out, for instance, spoiler alert, how he got his eye patched, like how he lost his eye. So I kind of like that, that they just dispense with that kind of stuff. Um, Now, I didn't mention that right when this happens, right when the bus comes in, of course, we get Remy on the on the phone and he is being alerted to a plane that is flying into the no fly zone above NYC. Um, and Hawk is not- evidently notified because he shortly arrives in a limo and he and Remy immediately head to air traffic control. You know, they learned that, uh, and there we learned that the plane is actually Air Force One. The president is on there and it's been hijacked by a terrorist from the quote unquote National Liberation Front. Um, and they're going to crash the plane. Now, now what's funny about this to me is wait, Snake just arrives right at the same time this happens. You know, that's like, that's kind of the just economical storytelling. And, you know, obviously Snake's going to play into this plot line, but I love this scene because I love the woman who's playing the terrorist Um, you know, she's just saying all these cliches, this is very seventies, right? In the seventies, remember there were hijackings all the fucking time, you know, and it's probably fresh off some of the hijackings of the early seventies that he wrote this, but it's like, she's saying, this is for the workers, you know, the racist police state, um, you know, we're going to kill the president. There's nothing you can do about it. And she's just kind of defiant. And it's really, really funny, um, kind of almost making fun of this crazy left-wing terrorist. Um, so what's interesting is at the same time, there's a secret service agent. So we see the president and his, uh, advisors at a table in air force one. And they're of course, preparing to, uh, you know, evacuate him, which we'll get to, but one of the things that is also going on is a secret service agent is trying to bash through the cockpit door to get to her. Um, and that is actually Steve Ford, who is Gerald Ford's son. Mm. So, uh, yeah, that's something they talk about in the, in the DVD commentary, which is really Really was funny. he played by Chevy chase or no, he was played by Steve Ford. Oh, he's, yeah. he's actually an actor, I guess he played, um, at any rate, uh, we meet the president and, uh, he's, they handcuff him to a briefcase, right. And then they put him in this egg that has the presidential seat. It's the official presidential pod. It's this red egg shaped pod, uh, that, they, they kind of put him into it, has some diodes and controls, very similar to the Star Wars pod that R2-D2 and C-3P yeah. will get into. I have no doubt that that was an influence. And influence. Yeah. Yes, and um of course, you know, the plane crashes into a building, very 9 The pod is jettisoned, you know, Hawk and his crew can kind of see this happen, see where it lands, and they immediately put a crew together to go in and get uh the president
2: with the uh, green beeping graphics you know, yeah green beeping
3: screen. graphics all up battle zone right yeah um and uh so they get they get uh you know this crew together and they go in and they go up to the pod and uh this figure approaches them and of course that is romero and romero is kind of like flock of seagulls times a million he's got yeah. hair stuck up in the sky he's got this crazed look he's got some kind of eyeliner on and he has this incredible dialogue where he just immediately goes up to them and he says, you touch me, he dies. You're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. He keeps kind of repeating, he dies. Yeah. And they're, and Hawk keeps trying to talk to him like, oh, we're ready to negotiate, we're ready to talk. And then Romero just starts counting. Yeah, And, they, and so Hawk and his team run away, right? It's a
2: great scene. Yeah. It's
3: an it's a really good scene and it really sets the tone for how dark and fucked up the Duke's crew is. And and I think, it's yeah, it really establishes that. Um, so Hawk leaves and then he talks to the Secretary of State over the phone. And um, you know, we realize now that there's a time limit. So this is uh there's a time limit because the president has this needs to give a presentation at this summit about the fact that they've discovered nuclear fusion, which is supposedly going to lead to world peace. They're gonna share this with everybody. And, and this is, this, it has this cassette tape, which is really funny. It really dates the movie in a way, right? Um, you know, cassettes. Uh, and this is kind of a screenplay device known as a MacGuffin, right? It's kind of like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction where you never know what it is, uh, but they're after it. It's, it's similar. It's just a device, this thing that they're after, this magic thing that just kind of moves the plot along. Um,
2: yeah, even though, I'll just have to say this now. Nuclear fusion was not a secret, number one. It's what powers the sun, number two. Well, it was, no, it was our ability to, to use it. We're still trying to do that now, right? Yeah, but we, I mean, we used it in the Manhattan Project, uh, to make bombs. So th- again, how it works in nuclear, the details. They're talking about fusion. nuclear fusion
3: as power rather than nuclear fusion. So they're talking which is how about nuclear sustainable nuclear, nuclear yeah. fusion
2: for energy, right? Right, which right. Is, yeah, exactly that. So it's just kind of funny they don't say any of that. They say nuclear fusion like it's some big secret, but they mean sustainable nuclear fusion. Reactions. That's what they mean. Yes, I got. Yes. I I had no question about that. That's what they mean. Okay. But the other thing is, it's not important. Right.
3: What's important is they're just trying to come up with some gobbledygook, you know, probably John Carpenter saw nuclear fusion stories in the paper about how, yeah, if we could have nuclear fusion, there's no waste when you run a nuclear power plant with it, unlike fission. And and it's like, you know, and, you know, we're trying to do scientists are still in pursuit of that now. Right. And it's like it's really just like, oh, that's something that sounds futuristic. I can make this about right that every country would want. Right. So so I think that's and and of course, this is like a zeitgeist of the time too. Three Mile Island, you know, is fresh on people's mind. Right. Yeah. So the nuclear disaster at Three Mile Island and, and the anti nukes, you know, the no nukes movement, you know, yeah, which is fission. But yes, yes, it's fission. That's what I mean. Yes. Yes. Right. That's fission. Right. As, of course, I believe fusion could probably have dangerous too right it's it's all not really <laughs> oh really so fusion yeah. would not be dangerous there's
2: no chance whatsoever of any kind of chain reaction in fusion um, so
3: that's the idea right so yeah, in other words right. i think it's a it makes sense totally makes sense which, right yes. it makes sense so um all right but it, again it's not important the important thing is it's important and it means world peace that's the important thing all right and so there's a time limit which we'll get to that's another trope but any at any rate, so Hawk, has this idea, right? He realizes that he's got 24 hours to get the president out. And we'll talk about this time because it kind of changes around a bit. Uh, He's got 24 hours to get the president out and he can't go in with a full army. So he's got this by coincidence, right? At the same time, this guy's coming in, who's snake Pliskin, who's like a special ops agent, who's done similar things in his Career record. So Hawk pulls Snake into his office and we see Snake for the first time. Really? Snake, we've kind of seen him walk through the halls, but he's sitting there and he he grabs a, a cigarette, he's handcuffed, he grabs a cigarette and he starts smoking it. It's like another new technology, self-lighting cigarette. Yeah. Um, which is really cool. <laughs> uh Hawk offers him a deal, a full pardon, uh, to fly a, a glider called the Gulf Fire into New York land on the world trade center and go get the president out. Right. Mm. And we'll talk more about this, this flight. Cause I think you have some stuff to say about that um, yeah. snake, you know, and of course he had done something similar quote in Leningrad and they kind of rattle through all of his achievements. You know, he's won two purple hearts, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so snakes attitude during this, is really funny. And there's an important line where he keeps calling him Pliskin, and he says, call me snake. We kind of turn that line around later in the film. Um, and then I think you wanted to talk about uh, Kurt Russell's acting here.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just so influenced by Clint Eastwood as we were saying before, basically. Yeah. Just the laconic style, I think. which
3: is perfect because Clint Eastwood starred with Lee Van Cleef in two great spaghetti Westerns for a few dollars more where he's a partner of them. And then where Lee Van Cleef is the bad in the good, the bad and the ugly. And Lee Van Cleef is actually depicted here kind of playing with a gun and it just calls back to his Western thing. I also got to say Lee Van Cleef is a very strange looking for an official. He's got earrings. Yeah. And he's got this weird kind of almost heavy metal giant watch band with, with studs and leather. It's yeah, like
2: from Rob Halford. Yeah,
3: actually. totally. Um, so at any rate, he explains the situation and it's funny because like, you know, snake could care less. He's just like, get a new president.
2: Yeah, that's a <laughs> uh, great line. It's a really
3: great line. Now, then we cut to a scene where, of course, they're walking down the hall and he's kind of giving him more exposition about what needs to be done. And then we cut to Remy, who's giving him kind of like a James Bond, you know, James Bond as the character uh, Q, who like always gives him weapons. So we see an array of weapons, including like guns, throwing stars, you know, infrared goggles, a homing beacon, etc. And Remy's kind of giving him a debriefing. No
2: condoms, though, which No condoms. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think you need to wear two or three condoms when you when you have sex in in Manhattan in 1997. Mm. Um, but anyways, so he's even he's even mentioning stuff he'll find inside. Like he mentions this, these subterranean dwellers called the crazies who we'll run into later. Um, and then Hawk takes Snake to Dr. Cronenberg. So this is another reference to a horror director. Right. Dr. Cronenberg. Um, who injects him with a supposed vaccine that will inoculate him against all the pathogens that are in this dirty prison, you know, prisoner infested uh, Manhattan. But it's really a bait and switch. What he's done is inject him with a couple of slow release mini bombs that will now kill him in 22 hours. So it was 24. So I don't know if it's been two hours, but it's now it's 22. We'll kill him in 22 hours if he doesn't bring back the president to get the antidote, which will defuse the bombs or whatever. And again, we can talk about the nanotechnology and whether it makes sense. It's not important, right? What we have here is a ticking clock. And a ticking clock is another trope like a MacGuffin that is used to generate suspense. And we'll refer back to this clock throughout the film, right? So there's a time limit. So you have this extra urgency because there's a time window. And if he doesn't get done. Like uh,
2: rescuing Cheney in Commando. Exactly.
3: Exactly, right? He's got the the duration of the plane flight, right, to yeah. whatever that fucking country was. I don't even remember. Valverde. Valverde. Awesome. <laughs> Dude, one of us likes Commando more than the others.
2: <laughs> one of the self. others.
3: At any rate, um, okay. and of course, he's, you know, Snake isn't happy about any of this. So he threatens to kill Hawk when he gets back. He says, "And when I get back, I'm going to kill you. I'll be back.
2: Yes. Yeah but the, but the, they, they mess up the time too. Right? They mess up the it?
3: time. Right. So yeah. he says 22 hours, but when you see he, he's given this giant digital watch wristband thing, that's massive. So you can see the numbers, you know, cause this will be shown later throughout the movie and it says twenty two fifty nine, So it's 23 hours. So 24 yeah. hours, 22 hours, 23 hours. That's something that projection booth pointed out. I've seen this movie a ton of times. I never even thought about that for a minute. <laughs>
2: I yeah, should have gotten Flavor Flav's clock. That would have been easier to see that he you know, wears around his It's neck. pretty
3: big, though. And it's, yeah, it is. it's pretty it is. It's dope. a digital version pretty of that. Dope. I, I so on one arm, he has the clock. On the other arm, he has this little uh, golden fascist eagle wristband that when you flip open the eagle head, it's got a button. And that's how he can activate a homing device. And of course, it's you know, no one can else could do that, I guess, which we'll find but, out.
2: By the way, speaking of fascists and sort of that golden eagle call to, you know, Nazi Germany, obviously, the way they hang the American flag in the background is the same way the Nazis used to hang their flag, you know, kind of uh, vertically. Vertically off of
3: a a ledge. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's definitely by design.
2: Yeah, no, there's no question about it. It's supposed to be a callback to that. I don't think there's any question.
3: So, the next scene we get is one of my favorite sequences in the film, just the way the lighting is. So, you see, you know, Snake is taken to the Gulf Stream glider or Gulf Fire, rather, uh, glider, and he is kind of backlit with this red light. And then you see all these computer screens. Again, none of them are computers, it's all just animation. And some of them, so the overhead view when he's flying overhead and he can see the buildings of New York, those are all cardboard boxes that are. The edges are painted with fluorescent paint, and it and it's just blacklight. They just signed a blacklight on it. It looks pretty damn good, I think, for yeah. for the time. I mean, you could tell it's primitive, but I would have always thought it would have been just primitive computer animation. But they did a pretty good job of this. So basically, this is uh, the glider scene. So the whole idea is he's going to land the glider. He's you mm. know he's being towed, and then he's going to land the glider, fly over New York, land the glider on top of one of the World Trade Center buildings. Right, yeah. and I think you had a lot to say about this.
2: Well, I—I I mean, first of all, landing a glider on top of a tiny little footprint building is pretty impossible. Even though they tried to make it look like, um, you know, an aircraft carrier where the jet lands with a hook. Yeah, it's got like a hook. Suit. Yeah, yeah, it's got a hook into it. But it's almost like I don't even understand. Obviously, the glider is supposed to be silent, so they can get snake into the city without people noticing. But gliders, you know, they're not, they they make noise. It's not engine noise, but there's wind noise and they're sort of obvious flying around. The other thing is like, I don't know why they wouldn't be just flying helicopters over the city in terms of like a patrol. They do that later. Why would not they just drop them down into the, onto the building? Yeah, they
3: fly helicopters throughout the film. Yeah. So why a glider?
2: Why a glider? Like they're just, they're trying to imply, I thought that they want to sneak him in and not make it, you know, that he's going in there, but just like, just drop him from a helicopter, which is actually possible to do on to a building. The whole glider thing doesn't make sense. And then even makes less sense, which we'll get to, that they, they escape with the president was supposed to be in the same glider. Like, what? Are, what is he, how is he, how is that going to work? Because, you know, gliders glide because they're brought to altitude. Right, right. There's no moment- have,
3: way to get the momentum. Exactly. Because right? it's a very small building. Yeah, I think. My my excuse for this is a it doesn't matter that much. You know, it's (laughs) you're right, it's totally illogical, but it's cool, right? The visuals are cool, it creates cool visuals, and then it harkens back to the scene with Hauk where, oh yeah, you did this in Leningrad. They could have done something else. They could have said, Oh, you were the only one who did this in Leningrad, and this is similar. But yeah, I think, I think uh at any rate, well, you know, as we'll get to it, the glider doesn't work out so well. right so maybe it was a bad idea right um so anyway yeah he gets the glider and it's very not very plausible that this would be the best way to get in but he gets in and then he's told there's an elevator be put some wires together it sort of works which is ironic because it takes him just not that not far down and he still has to walk down anyway but the interior takes him half the building takes him half the building oh that's pretty good that's pretty good and then and then the interior of this scene with all the graffiti and stuff is the Wiltern Theater, uh, which was later restored, as I mentioned. You know, he walks outside. There's devastation all around. And he comes upon the crash plane. This is a fucking awesome looking scene. They actually got a full fuselage in there. It looks really realistic. It's on. It's still flaming from the crash. And then he detects the president's homing device right inside of what looks like an old theater. And Mm. he kind of peeks in and starts to head in. And then of course, this is the first time we meet our friend, Cabby. Cabby is there. A bunch of the inmates are putting on this weird show. It's almost like a drag show and they're dancing around and seeing kind of like the cockettes would be in San Francisco in the sixties or whatever. They were kind of dancing around and and Cabby is just moving and grooving to this. It's pretty funny. He's got this goofy smile. And of course he sees snake. And of course he recognizes him. And he, see snake start to go downstairs. And of course, as we're going to learn being downstairs is not a great thing. Uh, and he kind of catches up to him and warns him about that. And of course he says the one line joke that is repeated by just about everybody in the movie. Uh, Oh, you're snake
2: Plissken. I thought you were dead. Right.
3: And that's a recurring joke.
2: Yeah. Um, and You know, by the way, everybody who says that line winds up dead. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. Everyone who says that line winds up dead. Yep. Yeah. And the other thing that was sort of amusing to me is there's no TV, presumably, that these prisoners have, no radio, maybe some pirate radio within the city, no internet but everybody really is well informed about snake and his exploits and whether he's dead or alive. I just find that amusing. Now Again, I don't doubt important. that
3: some of them would know who he is, but cabbie is a weird one because he's been in there for 30 years. He yeah. says he says that in a later scene, but yeah, he actually says he's been in there for 30 years. So presumably he's just a guy who stayed in New York when it became a yeah. prison uh, because yeah, he says he's been driving a cab for 30 years or he was driving a cab and he got arrested and then they just kept him there. Who knows? But it would be weird for him to know Snake, but maybe he and to recognize his way he looks. But for some of the prisoners, maybe they weren't in there that long. Maybe Snake has been at maybe. this for a while. So anyway, um, you know, downstairs, uh, this is a really important scene. It's a very subtle scene. It happens really quickly. But Snake encounters some guys who are kind of tossing around this punk girl and it's obviously are going to rape her. She seems very drugged out. He just keeps walking. He doesn't do anything to save her.
2: Um, and yeah, I think this is a really important scene yeah it's uh, I think it's just very effective, concise character exposition because, like in an instant, you know that he's not a hero, he's kind of an anti hero, and he has his own agenda and I think you referred to this earlier, like he could make a choice there just to shoot these guys or knock them out or whatever it is. And he just keeps walking. Yeah. Like, Cause it wouldn't not my take, thing. it
3: probably wouldn't take much time because I kind of went back and forth on this. Cause I'm like, well, he does have a timer on his life. So he does have to get going, but, it might, you know, he dispatches people pretty easily and he has all this weaponry. He could easily take these guys out, but he decides not to, Uh, he decides what's the point. So then we see this hobo and he's the hobo says nice boots. And then he echoes it, nice boots. And it's obviously he's working with some muggers of some type and these guys come out of the woodwork and they start attacking snake who completely dispatches them very quickly. Um,
2: and yeah, so yeah and that and that dude that that hobo is a professional hobo in terms of acting because it's the same dude who played the hobo in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, I
3: thought he looked familiar. He looks yeah. I think he's probably played a hobo in every fucking movie he's ever done. He's That's that typecast right. cuz he just looks perfect. I mean, he could be a hobo from the 30s or from New York in the 90s as we see or or actually what? we don't even know if yeah,
2: 1997. One thing that I actually was confused about in that scene where they're wailing on the guy who's wearing the 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 you know beep
3: beep right thing. so we didn't talk about that so obviously as snake is dispatching these guys he sees the pre- he sees the pre- what looks like the president being beaten by another guy because he can see the homing device on his wrist and because of course he's
2: traced it to this place right so right. that's the scene you're talking about it is and at first i i didn't i actually didn't think they were just like beating him i thought he was like raping him it looked really weird like when you watch that scene it it, it looks like he's kind of hitting him but it it looks even grosser than than, than that i don't know to me anyway but anyway as as snake comes forward and you know
3: dispatches the guy who's doing the raping or beating he basically realizes that it's just some bum who has the who has the president's homing device and it's not the president So he immediately calls Hawk and says, you know, the president's dead. Someone's had him for dinner is his quote. And he said, this isn't the president. And he kind of gives the, 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 the walkie talkie or whatever to the guy, uh, the bum and he starts singing hail to the hail to the chief. (laughs) <laughs> um he says yeah i'm the president hey, it's funny yeah. hawks so so snake says you know get me out of here and hawk says no you got 18 hours and snake says you know that whole thing about the president being dead and hawk's like if you if you climb, try to climb out before then i'll burn you off the wall you know he's basically like i'm gonna kill you if you try to get out you got you got to see this thing to the end so shake snake just kind of heads back to the egg um to look for any other clues he's kind of despondent sitting in a chair and then we see a figure in the, in the distance kind of in, in, in blurred out, come more into view and he's just banging on these manholes, right? We start to see him banging on these manholes and then the manholes start to get slide open. And of course, as John Carpenter says in the movie, there's no way a human being could push up a manhole from the bottom. They're made of wood. Right. And, and, and yeah. they were like, but they look really good. And you yeah. can hear this, you know, the Foley sound effect of them kind of clanking and then these guys are coming out from the, uh, from these sewers. And these are the crazies we learn later, but we also heard about them in Remy's kind of, uh, debriefing. And so snake knows that this isn't a good place to be. So he ducks into the chock full of nuts building or, or diner, which I think is a famous landmark in New York. I don't really, I know that's put there to give it verisimilitude because of course, we're in East St. Louis right now. We're not in New York, And he meets a different punker girl. And this is kind of interesting. It's a parallel to the other scene, really. But um, this punker is played by Susan Hubley, who was Kurt Russell's wife at the time. So both uh, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell were working with their wives in this movie. Yeah, And it's interesting. She actually gets credited in the trailer. I thought that was really weird.
2: She's barely in it. Uh, Well, but John Carpenter was not only working with his wife, his ex-girlfriend, and his Current wife. Yeah. That's yeah. also weird. Yeah. You know? But I
3: guess yeah. him and Deborah Hill had a if they were together, they had an amicable amicable I, breakup because they still I worked together. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. So anyway, the dialogue's pretty cool in this scene. She starts kind of you know at him with you're a cop and he says i'm an asshole because <laughs> he's so too. like i'm fucked like this ter- yeah. these, th- these things are coming out of the sewers everything's shit i'm not gonna find the president i'm stupid for taking this deal and then yeah. of course she recognizes him And what does she say i i heard you were dead and then very soon after that she's dead because well yeah. actually there's a little more dialogue about her being with some gang you know she kind of says she's with with uh with the skulls now and not with this other gang. And she's also trying to flirt with him and kiss him because she's realizes he's trying to get out and she wants to be him to take her with him. And then all of a sudden, a couple of crazies pop out of the floorboards and just pull her down. So she's of course yeah. dead. She cursed herself with that. Yeah. Um, and then of course, this happens twice in the film. Kurt Russell's running away that the crazies are coming into the diner. He's running away. And who does he run into? Perfect on time. Cabby Cabby yeah. comes up in his cab. Um, and he's talking to snake. He throws a Molotov cocktail at the approaching crazies and they drive off. And of course, uh, cabby is playing his favorite music, which is somehow the American bandstand theme. <laughs> uh, imagine listening to that all day. Yeah. Dick and, and uh, snake kind of, uh, he starts, he starts talking to him and it turns out that he knows where the president is. He kind of threatens Cabby, but Cabby is more than willing to spill the beans on everything. Um, he basically says, you know, the president is with the Duke, the Duke has him. And then of course we learn he's been driving the cab for 30 years, which I wrote, huh? As we mentioned, that doesn't quite make sense, but, uh, you know, you can make it make sense, I suppose. And then, yeah. and then of course, uh, Snake says, I want to meet the Duke. And Cabby replies, nobody gets to meet the Duke. You meet him and you're dead, which I thought was pretty funny.
2: Yeah.
3: So Cabby decides to take him to see Brain as a way to meet the Duke. And Brain has a base at a building that was actually the St. Louis um, Masonic Temple, but I think is meant to be the Public Library of New York, even though they don't have the Lions. But my wife, we were watching, she's all, is that the New York Public Library? And I'm like, yeah, but there's supposed to be some lion figureheads. It doesn't quite match, but it is a library as we find out when they go in. But the one who answered Fifth Avenue, the main famous one. Yes. Yes. I think it's meant to be that or something like it. Right. Because we know it is a library when they go inside. But the the one who answers the door isn't brain, but his his uh, main squeeze or the brain squeeze, as Cappy puts it, Maggie. And. She is not willing to let them in at first, but then when, when uh, Cabby says a snake Pliskin, of course she knows who he is. He's prison
2: famous. Yeah.
3: He's, he's prison famous. She comes out. And of course, uh, what do you want to say about first seeing Maggie? I know you have to say something about this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, wh- you see her boobs before you see her number one. And number two, of course, she says that she, you know, heard you were dead. Yeah, I uh, assured you were dead, like, right? And she's yeah.
3: kind of almost flirtatious with him in a way, I think. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she's very, you know, this, I could almost see Pam Greer, who is similarly well endowed in that department, playing this yeah. part. It's kind of a tough, but sexy because they show the cleavage. It's like, hard to look away. Really? Yeah. It kind of, she, she kind of steals the show uh, in some ways, but anyway, they go inside and the indoors is this, this was shot at the USC library. Um, mm. And they basically, the indoor is kind of a, the indoors is kind of like brains base. It, he's got like an oil, derrick pumping there. He's also got the, what looks like a, a moonshine still, but I think this is one of the steam gasoline machines. We'll see one of these later. Um, and it turns out that, uh, snake and brain know each other. So, Mm. um, brain, uh, you know, it turns out had been a partner in crime with snake and another guy we learn of named Fresno Bob. (laughs) And of course, (laughs) Fresno Bob, I don't think made it because of brain. And we, and we get a very real sense of brain played by Harry Dean Stanton, who's really good in the part. We get a real sense that he's like, uh, always talking his way out of stuff. You know, he's yeah. he's a, a good, good bullshitter. He's a good yeah. bullshitter. Right. Um, yeah. So it turns out that brain is called brain by the Duke because he makes gas out of steam somehow or he gets <laughs> the gas. I don't know, because they're drilling for oil, too. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, there, there's but, probably not a lot of oil under the island of Manhattan. Just say I would say if but, you're going to poke at the science of this film, this is the big one. I would say the other stuff, you know, the glider and the cold fusion or whatever, this is really the the one that stands out is like, what the fuck steam? I I don't know. It's kind of cool, but you know, it's, it's also nonsense. Yeah. At any rate, the other thing that brain is planning, so brain kind of clues, a uh, snake in on the Duke's plan. And the Duke's plan is to use the president as sort of a bargaining chip, as we mentioned at the beginning to get out. And, and what brain has somehow got a hold of is a map of the 69th street bridge, which uh, is a play on the 59th street bridge, which we talked about in our Simon and Garfunkel episode, but I love yeah. that it's 69. I mean, that's <laughs> John coop. That's maybe that's Nick castle throwing that in for the humor. Um, yeah. So anyway, the the mythical 69th Street Bridge, he's got a map of where all the mines are. As we mentioned in the intro, and as Jamie Lee Curtis mentioned, all of the bridges are mines. So they need to have a a way to travel without hitting any of the mines. And he is going to provide this to the Duke, right? Yep. And uh, at the same time, another economical plot device, the Duke just happens to drive right up at that (laughs) that moment. Um, And he is after... Brain's map of the minds, and the Duke's entry is fucking one of my favorite things in the movie because the music is this kind of funky black exploitation, uh, Afro synth jam, and the Duke's car for its headpieces, it's got on each light, it's got a little mini chandelier, so it's totally black exploitation. Like I call it a black exploitation to probably to Isaac hayes's earlier role in the movie truck turner and it's pretty great you know and he comes with this whole caravan of other cars you know his whole crew
2: yeah and that's all mad maxed out to the hill right that whole scene. right yeah, yeah so duke so snake has a
3: plan to sort of you know hijack one of these cars, you know, he decides that he, he basically tells brain, you know, the Duke's here. So lead me back to his place. And brain's like, well, it's all the way across town. And so they hijack this kind of road warrior esque station wagon. It's really funny. Um, and they start to proceed across town to the duke's HQ and en route they are met by a series of different obstacles the first are a bunch of guys just throwing bricks at them yeah um these are of course were really foam bricks um and then they 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 run into a gang of hammer wielders uh and then finally they run into a wall of cars and uh another maybe implausible event uh snake backs you know basically turns around and backs the station wagon through the entire wall of cars i don't think that would be successful but it's pretty entertaining to watch now the duke has the president in an old train station this was actually
2: maybe the car was made of the same material that uh radon chong's car was in commando maybe yeah maybe that didn't didn't uh couldn't
3: be uh damaged um So anyways, the the next scene, we 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 actually come to the Duke's headquarters and this is actually a real train station that was abandoned as part of these fires in East St. Louis. And it's pretty fucking amazing looking. I mean, it's like I mean, we'll get to some of the other sequences in here, but this is actually where the trains are. And it turns out that the president is being held on one of them. And so brain and Maggie come up to the guards. And I I wrote here that a couple of the guards look like Cheech and Chong. They've all got these headbands. They're kind of a goofy gang. Um, And they tell them that the Duke wants him to go inside and talk to the president. Um, But of course the other guy isn't buying it really, but, but this is really more of a distraction. So snake can sink in the sneak around the back and go in and get the president. Now, as he comes in one of the guards has a crossbow and shoots him in the leg and um he kills that guy and then the other guy who's closer to the president who's kind of talking with the president um and taunting him basically turns around and snake immediately gets him with the throwing star this is a really cool scene the guy's just kind of
2: stunned and dead what, what is the motivation for the brain and maggie to help snake do this i well
3: you know that's a that's a good question because well no I'm sorry I totally skipped this this is my bad right S- Br- snake convinces brain that the president isn't worth anything after 24 hours and mm. so he also convinces him that uh it's not the president that matters but it's this tape now yeah. obviously brain and maggie could go tell the duke this and they could do that that's kind of a little bit of a plot hole i think but but I think they decide maybe that, um, you know, and of course they're, yeah, I, I would say that might be a little bit of a question. You know, why wouldn't they just go tell the dude, hey, there's this, I mean, I don't think he he tells them about the tape yet. I think he just tells them the president is no good after 24 hours and originally brain doubts him. He's like, yeah, you're full of shit. But then eventually his brain. So he figures it out. Actually brain is supernaturally intelligent later in the film. And I'll get to that. There's a couple of things brain figures out. There's no way he could fucking figure them out. But Mm. anyway. um, So yeah, I would say that could be a minor concern, but again, the goal is to move the plot along. So it's not a big deal to me. So at any rate, he gets the president and the president is completely rattled. You know, he's he's shaken and and, you know, he's asking Snake, are are you from the outside? And Snake tells him, you know, to stop shaking. And the president says, I can't. Um, You know, he's really rattled by this whole experience. Now, crazy fact that I found out is that Donald Pleasence was an actual World War II prisoner. He, He was a pilot in World War II. Not a guy you would think, by the way, I didn't mention he's a big part of Halloween. That was where he first started working with John Carpenter. I forgot to mention, that's an important thing. But he was a fighter pilot in World War II who was actually captured by the Japanese and tortured. Mm. So maybe he's calling forth, you know, using method acting to call some of that forth. But that was pretty right. mind-blowing to me. I never would have pegged him for that. Um, so as they are trying to escape, though, Romero and the Duke catch up with them. and But you notice that Maggie has a gun and she's able to hide it. Um she doesn't hide it in the obvious place. She doesn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. She doesn't really hide it there, but that would be the obvious place to hide it. Um, yeah. So Duke, of course, doesn't recognize Snake at first. Um, but then he says, I've heard of you. And of course, what does he say? I've heard you were I dead. I thought you were thought dead. You were dead. Yeah. 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 And then he says that he knocks him out. Right. Yeah. So uh, we get some helicopter surveillance scenes. The hell, you know, obviously. You know, occasionally we'll check back with with Hawk. I didn't really mention all the times so we check back with him, you know, because obviously he sees that Snake is, uh, you know, he's kind of lost, loses track of Snake and, and this and that. Um, But we get some helicopter surveillance, and this is really cool. This is more of that great car, uh, blacklit cardboard. looks really cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's like they, in Running Man, they copied it a thousand percent. It looks like the exact same thing in Running Man, where, you know, Schwarzenegger is just like, they're just hungry. Feed them, you know.
3: Running like Man is man. almost a copy of this movie in a lot of yeah, ways, yeah. too. As much as right. I love it, it's very related to that. Um, now we get a morning scene, which is kind of jarring because the whole movie's been in the dark. Um, and we see Pliskin wake up to a bunch of the Duke's gang hanging over him. And I kind of joke, you know, it's got, they're really goofy looking. It's almost like Captain Beefheart and his magic band are guarding him. You know, it's really, <laughs> really kind of a goofy hodgepodge, or maybe the gang from Beat It, Fast really and colorful. Bulbous. Colorful yeah. post-apocalyptic gang, um, and he's We we see him with his shirt off. His shirt's been taken off, and we see this tattoo, this s sh- snake that comes right out of his pants. Yeah. It's pretty funny, um, but it's pretty also awesome. Watch out for that venom. That's right. Then we cut to the Duke, who is. This is a great scene. I love the scene. Who is using the president for target practice? The president is kind of in a crucified, pinned to the wall. You know, kind of like a knife thrower act. And he's got the briefcase hanging down and the Duke is firing at him with the machine gun. And he's making the president repeat over and over again. You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one, (laughs) Uh, which is really funny. And then he ends up shooting open the briefcase during the scene. And that's when Romero kind of comes up to the president and notices something fall out, a bunch of papers, which he ignores, and then a cassette tape, which he just pockets.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just thought it would weird was, would be weird that they wouldn't be more curious about the briefcase before that point just busted open. Like, what's in this thing that's chained to the guy's hand? You know, it just seems like it would be more of a, a, a object of interest to them before it just randomly gets shot open at that scene. But, you know, whatever. Well, you know, I've thought about this because I kind of saw your comment.
3: And I thought about it. But, you know, you think about it. The Duke, I don't think, is very smart. Mm. But, he, you know, because I was always, well, how could he lead all these people if he isn't smart? You know, like, how could the Duke, uh, you know, be the leader of New York without being smart? Well, obviously, we've recently experienced in our country a leader who I wouldn't consider to be smart at all. Donald Trump, who is just happens to have incredible charisma. Mm. So I think the Duke is like charismatic. A lot of
2: extra money to pay off uh, porn stars. I and, guess so. I guess so. Yeah. But the
3: Duke isn't smart. I don't think mm-hmm. any of the Duke or his henchmen are smart. I mean, obviously, Brain is able to talk his way out of all kinds of shit during this movie, and so I think it's consistent that they wouldn't care. They're just thinking of the president as a bargaining chip, and they're one. They, they've got a single mind. I agree with you. That's the first thing I would look into. Why is this briefcase must be important? It's yeah, chained to him. Exactly. It must be important. But I can yeah. kind of explain that because I just don't still think they're very smart you know they're brutal and strong and charismatic but dumb and obviously they would be nowhere without without brain
2: i don't know i think a chimp would be interested in what's in the thing attached to him maybe you know well Romero
3: is a little bit he pockets the tape although you know who knows if he's operating on a full deck he's obviously insane yeah um
2: so, I don't know, just like his whole gang, it just seems like something I just kept, it bothers me because yeah. like his whole gang would have been like, you know, curious, like what's in this thing that's chained to this guy's, even if they didn't, they couldn't read, right, even if right. they, you, you know, it just seems like something that's a little interesting anyway. So Duke sends Brain to go get the map of the bridge.
3: Finally, again, there's another question for you, like, why does he take so long to do this? But eventually he does. He decides it's time to get out. And then we see we cut to a scene of a field. And that's where you see the buildings that are all painted by James Cameron in um, a helicopter flying over the field next to these buildings. And there's a bunch of Duke's henchmen that are kind of hailing the the helicopter to come down. The helicopter lands. A bunch of soldiers get out. The Duke's uh, men scatter, and then there's the briefcase there, right? So they find the briefcase, which has a note inside with the basically the Duke's terms uh, of getting which the. They were able out. to
2: write, so that kind of uh, gets rid of the literate. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thing, right? Well, I don't think they need to be. A, I
3: don't think reading necessarily always equates to intelligence, but you know, maybe they're not logical. But anyway. Uh, inside are also Snake's infrared glasses, which is another pretty smart thing to do to kind of give the signal that Snake is actually dead. Although in their mind, he soon will be, as we'll yeah. find out shortly. Um, so we are we also see Snake look at the timer. There's now one hour and 56 minutes left. Um, they, it shows a couple of times in the movie. I skipped some of those, like when it was 18 hours, et cetera. Um, and then we pan back to Union Station, the Duke's headquarters. And we see Snake being walked down this hall. And this hall is like very ornate, red, you know, kind of painting and a very almost like a French uh, colonial look, like a French revolutionary look. It's This was actually a really fancy restaurant in the station that was condemned. And then they walk out into this wide open hall and there's a wrestling rink there. And this is where Snake is going to fight slag. Slag is a giant seven foot tall named pro wrestler who's named Ox Baxter. That's the actor. And Kurt Russell actually said this guy did not understand Hollywood fighting. So basically they were fighting and he was hitting him way too hard. And obviously this is a big, strong dude. So they fight, they, they are given a series of weapons. This is kind of the gladiatorial spectacle that the Duke is offering his men. Uh, to entertain them. And the Duke is up high on a kind of dais on a balcony. Um, All his men are around kind of uh, uh, chanting and hooting and hollering. Um, First, they're given bats and Snake starts fighting him. Uh, Meanwhile, Brain somehow figures out (laughs) that Snake uh, had landed on the World Trade Center. He like kind of goes through this series of deductions. This is kind of superhuman brain power to me. I don't think there's any way he would have figured this out, but again, this is kind of this economical, let's get cut to the chase. Let's just have brain be smart enough to kind of deduce this. He kind of goes through a series of deductions. That's like Sherlock Holmes level of intelligence. Um, And Maggie and brain while the fight is going on. So the fight is going on. Snake is not doing well. He's mostly losing as you would expect him to in this kind of fight. Um, And then they, find the president, Maggie and Brain find the president's being held by Romero. They try to convince him that, uh, oh yeah, I should say when we go in on the president, he's sitting there in a chair
2: with a blonde wig on, (laughs) uh, chained to a chair with an American flag. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, this is such a great scene. And I just, how they came up with this idea was amazing. And I was, I was just thinking that they made this today. It would definitely be like uh, the scene in Pulp Fiction with the GIMP oh and, yeah or, or and marcellus and what happened to him that they didn't talk so about i know after. i
3: can tell you how they came up with this it was donald pleasant's idea That's to awesome. put on the wig he just put on the wig like he That's he was so married that. i mean he's like he's like a, an acclaimed actor he's done all kinds of he did like roman polanski films and shit kind of knows what he's doing even though he's in a lot of b-rate horror movies and and, and stuff like you know kind of uh pulpy movies he's like fucking knows what he's doing he i i think adding that wig was a touch of genius that just makes the scene you know it does, it's, you could really see does. romero the character of romero would do that you yeah, know that's something totally. he would do. so they're they're i mean and the other thing is the dukes men aren't totally dumb because they almost never fall for like brain can kind of convince them for half a second but romero doesn't fall for any of his I, stuff He doesn't pull from his stuff for a second. So basically they're Maggie and brain are go in there. Brain is trying to convince Romero to let him kind of inspect the president to, um, you know, to, to, uh, because he's got a cyanide pill or something like, and he's worried he's going to take it and all this, but they, um, you know, and I think they try to find the tape. I think what he's trying to do is find the tape. uh, If he knows about the tape, the whole tape thing has some problems in the plot. We'll get to, but, at any rate, Romero isn't buying it. So Maggie just starts killing the other guys. And then Brain has a knife, he stabs Romero. It's and Romero has a fucking awesome death scene. Super dramatic method death scene. It's so great. Makes
2: a lot of funny noises yes. and such. And he's
3: yeah, he just really goes for it. Now we cut back to the fight. So in, initially they're given bats to fight each other with, and then the weapons are changed to bats with nails in them and garbage can lids as shields. Um and <laughs> They're fighting for a while and Snake manages to kind of use his dexterity to kind of swoop around and trip the the uh, uh, slag. And then he beds the bat into the back of his head. And what's trippy about the scene is this actually the way they did this is they had a wood plank kind of attached to the back of the guy's head. And he actually had to hit it for real to embed the nails in the wood plank, which, of course, the actor was really worried about <laughs> yeah. as you would be. Right. Yeah. Um, so then uh, we cut uh snake does a quick glance at his watch. It's now 20 minutes later, hundred hour and 34 minutes left. And the crowd starts chanting snake. Meanwhile, of course, as, as uh, Maggie and brain are taking the president away, they are seen by one of the henchmen. So the henchman comes in and yells that, you know, brain's got the president. And he's, and so everyone leaves and runs out. And of course, snake knows what brain knows that he's going to go to the world trade center. So another kind of jump in logic there a little bit. Um, Now we cut to Hawk and the USPF thinks snake is dead. So they want to go in with the full force and just go ape shit. Right. But he suddenly sees snakes homing device get triggered and He deduces that only Snake could know that it has a catch that you could flip open and trigger this. And so um, that's why he kind of says, let's give Snake more time. Okay, so we cut to the roof and suddenly it's night. This is this is probably the weirdest thing to me. Now, if you looked at the watch, maybe this would work. Uh, because it's 24 hours. So maybe time passed when Snake was passed out again, but it's really weird that it's suddenly, it's
2: jarring to me that it's suddenly night. So it was oh, light in the fight scene, right? Because light was streaming through the windows of, wasn't it? Yeah, and that then- could have been day for night, but this is this is
3: probably, yeah, it's weird because it's definitely shot during the day, but they would probably shoot a lot of interiors during the day. And I'm sure that that was actually a real location. So probably they couldn't black it out really well without incurring a lot of money. So they probably filmed it during the day for, to cut down on lighting, but, but yeah, it's a, it's a little jarring to see it suddenly be night again. So they're on top of the roof and they're having this fight with these guys, you know, these guys on the roof uh, and, and they're in the middle of a gun battle, you know, Maggie brain and the president um, and snake just kind of walks in on this and he, he, he had passed by their car. So he saw that they had a car um, and he walks in and then during the shootout, the, the, uh glider is cut loose and uh, jettisoned to the ground so the glider's out they can't use the glider and you hear um brain say fucking redskins or damned redskins or whatever he says and it turns out this was a subplot where this part of town would be ruled by like a native american gang but they kind of jettison that like even in the credits you can see like first indian second
2: indian like credits Was Um, it named by John Wayne or something? I don't know.
3: Yeah, I know. It's not exactly politically correct. Um, So at any rate, um, so now they have no choice but to go to our favorite 69th Street Bridge.
2: Um, And (laughs) what what, what would Simon and Garfunkel's song be? You know, it said uh, 59 was feeling groovy. What would 69 be? I don't know, feeling horny? Uh, Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) so...
3: At any rate. Yeah. So, so they go down to the car, but it won't start. And why won't it start? Cause there's a fucking dude in it. They open the yeah. tr- trunk to check it. And the dude comes out with a fucking air bow and arrow yeah. pointing at him. And suddenly they see the Duke and his henchman. And interestingly enough, the Duke is standing right next to one of these whiskey steam gas stills kind of pumping along. It's really, it's really kind of funny. It's really there for a reason we'll about, we're about to get to. Um, So, of course, brain is trying to talk him, talk his way out of it. The Duke is not going for it. And then uh, I think Maggie or one of them shoots this steam powered thing and it shoots a bunch of steam into the Duke's face. Everyone's distracted. They bolt out another door. And of course, they find Cabby again. Perfect timing. Cabby is waiting Mm -hmm. for them and they get into the car and Cabby has the tape. So that's one of the things I'm like, how did that fucking happen? Like, it seems almost like brain met with him before, but why would you take your own car? If you had Cabby? it doesn't really work. Right. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a blob, but again, it's, you know, we need cabbie there. Cabbie's got to be there. He's supposed to get out too. And then we see 23 minutes left on the clock. So we're down to the wire here. Now we're in a car chase. Music gets really awesome. Again, you know, very pulsing kind of synth. Somehow snake is now driving and, they are on the bridge and, and uh, the Duke is chasing them alone in his giant, uh, you know, hoopty um, and brain <laughs> is kind of telling snake where to go. Like, don't drive here, turn left, go right. And there's all these kind of burned out decayed cars on the bridge. So they're have, it's like an obstacle course. And they're also having to dodge the mines. Um, they miscalculate and they hit a mine and the car gets literally blown in half. So yeah. the first half and the second, and of course, Cabby dies.
2: So he is killed. And nobody else even gets a flesh wound. from. Nobody gets a flesh explosive. wound. They yeah. get
3: out of the car. They start to proceed on foot. Brain fucks up and miscalculates. He actually blames Snake for something he did for, for blowing up the car. And then he immediately gets killed. He gets blown yeah. up. Uh, and Maggie is completely stunned and in a trance at this. And Snake really tries to convince her. This is why I think she's the one person he kind of likes because he really tries to convince her to come with him. He's he stays behind a little bit. I mean, this it's got minutes left, you know, and he's like trying to get her to go, but she won't do it. Instead, she um, points the gun. You know, she kind of turns around, points the gun, really squeezing those those babies together there (laughs) um, and starts firing at the Duke, um, the oncoming car of the Duke. Of course, the Duke just runs her down. Mm. And he uh, and of course, they just happen to be at the end of the bridge, too. So they're they're pursuing on foot. The Duke gets out to pursue them on foot um, and he kind of looks over her corpse and it's got syrup all over. It looks really fake blood, but it's like a lot of it
2: really gory. Um, That was filmed after the movie was. Oh, that's right. In the garage. In the garage is
3: filmed in the garage. That's kind of cool. Of the Carpenter Barbeau house. Yeah. So Snake and the President are now at the wall and the USPF are there and they're waiting for them with a kind of cable and pulley system. Uh, and the Duke starts pursuing them on foot and he has a gun and he's shooting at them. And then somehow the snake wrestles, a snake wrestles him to the ground. They get into a wrestling match as the USPF soldiers are pulling the President up. Um, then Snake kind of knocks the Duke away and he grabs at the pulley they start to pull him up and then it stops. Yeah. And the reason it stops is this next scene. The president now has a machine gun uh, and he starts to shoot at the Duke and he starts taunting him. And I think you have a clip of this. I do. Duke. so Great. good so yeah, good yeah, one of the greatest funny. scenes of all time donald pleasant's just delivering the yom fucking acting chops i know y'all <laughs> hang
2: day number one.
3: so good <laughs> and so finally they you know it's it's a suspenseful scene because snake is like what the fuck come on you know he's like yeah. and then they pull him up and uh dr cronenberg is waiting and snake immediately starts to go over to him to get the 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 injection you know the clock is seconds to go and hawk immediately stops him and demands the tape first um yeah. and then he gets the antidote meanwhile the president who is still in handcuffs is being prepped for a broadcast so snake comes up to him and the president thanks him and says he'll give him anything he wants and snake just says just a minute of your time mm. We did get you out of there. A lot of people died in the process. I was just wondering how you felt about it. And the president gives him some bullshit politician answer. He says, this nation thanks them for their sacrifice. He's kind of stammering insincerely. And then he's getting shaved. He's getting shaved, right? He's getting buttoned into a shirt and tie. And and he he says, "Um, I'm on the air in 2.5 minutes. So Snake leaves, disgusted. He tosses away his cigarette. And on the way, kind of from walking away, he uh, Hawk approaches him and says, you know, he kind of jokes, are you going to kill me now? And Snake says, I'm too tired, maybe later, which I love. Yeah. Um, and then Snake walks off. And as he does, we cut to the president, who is now completely dressed in a suit with his hands behind his back, tied the handcuff, and and he introduces the tape. He pushes play, and we hear American bandstand. So Snake had test out the, the tape. Wouldn't they just say no, because it's down to the wire. I guess it's, it's like, it's like minutes. They, this thing is, while they're shaving
2: them, they wouldn't say, Hey, do we have the right tape? Is this like, why know, would they think the tape was wrong? Why would they even think, is that? it Iron Maiden killers album? Like, like what, what's on this? I don't know. Maybe. Right. So anyway, I think that's, I don't, I don't buy it. I think, I think
3: it's fine. And then he cuts it, And I think it's worth it. I think it, I think the ending is so good that I think it's worth it. So we cut to Snake, who unspools and destroys this tape that can save humanity. He does yeah, not awesome. give a fuck. Now, how that's anyone great. can say this ending isn't fucking awesome is insane. I mean, come on. Snake is just like, fuck the entire human race. I know, great. <laughs> I don't care about your wars. I don't care, because he even says, I don't care about your damn, your damn president. I don't care about your damn wars at the beginning. And he's just like, fuck, you know, fuck this. And he basically just like, I did this for nothing. This life is meaningless.
2: Denialism it's such a cynical there, and the so, nihilism yeah, is fucking
3: yeah. awesome. So that is the movie, folks. So if you haven't seen this movie, you didn't obey the commandment at the, at the beginning of this film, please go see this movie. By the way, do you know what the joke is? The running joke is in escape from L.A. Do you remember? No, I don't. So instead of saying, I thought you were dead, they saw it. They say, oh, you're Snake Plissken. I've heard of you. I thought you'd be taller, uh, which is okay. kind of funny because I think Kurt Russell is a short dude. I'm not sure yeah. if he is, actually. But anyway, it's they had to repeat that, which is, you know, whatever. Anyway, so evaluations.
2: Uh, final, final word on this film. What do you say? Um, well, look... I- I think this movie is very much a product of its time in the look and you know, you're talking about the graphics and the, the special effects and all that. And there's a lot of commonalities with stuff like Blade Runner, obviously made very at a very similar time frame, even though the movies are very different in in important ways. Um, but that that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's kind of a classic era of movie making. We talked about the opening scene, the robbery being missing. I I get your point about that they kind of did a lot of concise exposition by not having that scene and just saying, oh, I heard about you. I heard about this famous robbery that didn't go well. and That's why you're here. But I don't know. I kept like wondering. I, my wife and I were like watching this. Kept wondering, just, like, well, how do they know about Pliskin?" Like, it, it was a little bit of a leap. Not a huge deal, but just, well, I, I don't know.
3: The famous robbery might not be the only robbery. I, yeah. I I didn't get the sense that he just did one thing. I got the sense that he was like, like an almost like a, an art, yeah. a career criminal who but, got some notoriety because he was like a former lawyer. So so I think yeah. that it plays. I I think with Cabby, you're right. There's no way Cabby would would recognize him physically. Yeah. I don't I don't see how they unless people brought because I don't think I don't think they would let people bring a newspaper or anything into that prison. Right. Now, it seems like and you know we could talk about the logistics of the prison too. Uh, like how the fuck did they, I mean, I know there are food drops, but how did people get food? And then of course there's the crazies who might've been cannibals. It was kind of, it seemed to be implied, but but there's the whole logistics of that world. And I think Cisco and neighbor are wrong. I think if you go too into that, you get too bogged down in that. And it takes over because there are a lot of holes in how that world works, including the steam gas and the, how would people eat? How would they live? Uh, you know, et cetera.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um the early 80s dystopia kind of art direction is hilarious. And all these movies kind of look the same. It's like there was a learning annex class about how you make you know dystopia, and they all took the same class. And the other thing is, is like um, a lot of 80s heavy metal videos would use the same set basically, like looks at kill is one that comes to mind. Yeah, I didn't and even think of that. That, 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 <laughs> that was
3: a commonality, and even dude. What about In the Beginning by Motley
2: Crue? That could, oh, be, yeah. that could be the intro to this movie. It's the same sure. story. It's the same story. Yep, that's right. So um, the Battle Zone look, we talked about that. And then the funny thing is, is those was a kind of late 70s you know, clock display things they probably thought were futuristic because they were small at the time, which is hilarious in retrospect. Mm-hmm. But there you go. There's a scene of Lee Van Cleep
3: with this giant walkie talkie. It looks like the world's largest cell phone, too. Yeah. There's definitely that early technology.
2: And that was probably cutting edge. They're like, "Wow, Mm -hmm. look at this! He has a he has a walkie-talkie wire. He has a wireless thing there." Um, Anyway, the cast: Ernest Borgnine casting him so weird that they had cast him for this role, but it totally works. Um, Amazing. Adrian Barbeau. Well, we we talked about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lee Van Cleef is a weird casting choice for this role, and I I mean I love him in this. But he's just so, he's just odd looking as a bad guy. And, you know, he's older at this point than his like 60s Spaghetti Western kind of thing. So he's a little paunchy and, you know, I, I don't know. It's just a, it's just weird, but cool. Harry Dean Stanton, you know, classic, one of his typical roles, very common type of role he plays um, on a lot of things. Um, and Isaac Hayes, I just sort of make sense in the kind of just like this world is crazy world uh, that they painted there. Um Snake Plissken, you know, obviously he's an anti-hero. We talked about that. And, and the, maybe an ultimate anti-hero, because in a lot of movies, the anti-hero sort of has a change of heart and becomes the good guy. You know, yeah, like Han Solo hero. is one of those, right? Han yeah. Solo, I was just going to mention that, a perfect example. But Snake Plissken goes the other way. He goes full heel. And like as big as heel as you can imagine, because he's just basically apparently consigned humanity to the shit bin, which is um, interesting um overall i can't say this is like one of my favorite movies of all time like maybe you think it is for you although i do like it a lot it's really good it's really entertaining it's funny it's well executed it definitely holds up i've been watching this movie for 40 years at this point Mm -hmm. and every time i watch i go i love this movie this is good this is entertaining this is fun um, it's great for what it is. Um, and I think it's uh classic status is well-deserved. So yeah, hell yeah. I'm long on this.
3: All right, cool. So uh, I, you know, look, I would say as a film, as far as John Carpenter's output, I would say that his two masterpieces are really Halloween and the thing. I think those are objectively better movies, but I don't care. This movie is a number one to me. <laughs> I, I a fucking love it. But- it's a number one. This is one of those movies that <laughs> You know, because because like Halloween scary, I could watch it maybe again and again. The thing I've watched a few times, but it's like this movie I could watch right now and then I could watch it again. And I don't think I'd be bored. It's just fun. You know, it's just fun to watch. It's very rewatchable. It kind of creates its own world. I put in the same class as like a movie like Starship Troopers, which I really was disappointed in when I first saw. But I love it now. I've seen Uh, it like.
2: we have to cover that. We have I to cover
3: Hate it. I fucking love that movie. It's so entertaining to me. It's so, yeah, I mean, that's, a, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of that movie. That's an example of a movie where I didn't like it at first, but then whenever it's on, I'll just watch it and enjoy it, you know? And movies like this are movies that, if let's say I'm flipping channels. Maybe I'm visiting someone's house that has cable. I have streaming, so I kind of could choose what I'm going to watch. But if this movie was on, I would just watch it. Like, even yeah. if I started in the middle, I would just watch the rest of it. This is one of those movies. It's funny. For me, um, too. Yeah. One of those movies, too, is Goodfellas, which is a legit masterpiece by anyone's measure. But I could, again, I could watch Goodfellas anytime. I could just watch it. Um, Snake Plissken is a fantastic character. Obviously, he's inspired by other things, and he inspired other things. Uh, he's kind of an amalgam of stuff that was done before, but I just don't know if it's been done better to me. I I really think he's... Just perfect. His image is great. He's got that kind of 80s hair. Um, you know, he just, it really is iconic. Like your friend's dad was totally on to something with his yeah. Halloween costume. You know, as far as John Carpenter, he's one of these guys, you know, I think of programmers too. There's these genius programmers and then there's just these guys who get shit done. You know, like at yeah. my work, who will just like, you know, maybe the code isn't as elegant or it's not some innovative thing or some, you know, but it's like they get the work done. And that's what they they can just get shit done economically quickly. It's solid. It's, you know, John Carpenter is that to me. He's just one of these guys who knows how to make a movie. He knows how to make an entertaining movie. He knows how to write a screenplay that just gets to the point and makes you so you're never bored. And the pacing is right and everything, even if he has to, like, maybe leave some holes there to do that. And I think I call it his economical storytelling you know um where coincidences happen that are implausible at best like for example snake arriving at the prison at the exact same time the hijacking happens like what are the chances zero right Right. and then um you know cabbie somehow showing up just the right time each each time you know whether he was negotiated with at the beginning or, or him somehow getting the cassette passed to him at some time to remind you of the switch. It kind of, it kind of predisposes you to, to at the end go, Oh yeah. You know, like to remind you of that switch. That's why cabbie kind of had to be involved again, I think. Um, and I think people could put all, uh, be, you know i think people could short that you know they could that could be a strike against the film but for me i just find it kind of sharp charming and you know a great way of getting exposition out of the way this film could be even more heavily expository and i think Ziskel and ebert with their like oh i wanted to explore more of the world i mean we already had enough exposition for this movie if you you got into how the prisoners were fed it would just distract from the main plot you'd end up or with like a pooped yeah yeah you end up with like a two-hour movie that lags and drags versus a 90 minute movie that just and moves at a solid clip and is never boring not even for a second right the cast or maybe
2: is, the ending according to ebert right
3: uh he's so dumb the ending is like one of the best things about the movie if not the best um the cast the acting everything is great um i do like adrienne barbeau in the film i think she's kind of like a tough action heroine and um you know obviously she's physically distracting in a lot of ways but you know it's not a problem to watch for me um and i think the music and the production design are all great like you said it's it's of that early 80s aesthetic but it really does still look pretty solid i mean compare it to escape from la with that cgi which is hard to look at this is kind of nice to look at even though you know it's it's of that time i like that aesthetic and i love the music too um and you know as for, you know, the evaluation and and whether this will stand the test of time or not, right? Uh, you want to say something? <laughs>
0: no,
3: go ahead. What do you say? What do you think? <laughs> do we got to get this out here? No, I was just, I just read your comment. So go ahead. All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I really believe strongly in this. So post-apocalypse is, um, this is my big thesis on this, right? my college thesis, right? So I think we... You know, especially during the pandemic, we've had all this post apocalyptic stuff getting more and more. You know, we've had like recently shows like The Walking Dead, and, you know, and just now we are, um, I think we're going to have more apocalypses (laughs) coming. If you look at how things are going, right? The financial system, the pandemic, it's like things aren't getting better, man. It's like we're probably going to have this. And something's gonna maybe it's gonna be chat GPT and we're gonna be in the world of term of t t2 you know I don't know yeah but at any rate you have a show like the last of us now and the last of us is about zombies but more of the more of the problem is the people right yeah. I mean with the characters in that in that video game slash TV show more of the dangers they face are other people and I of really course. that the plague or you know we saw people acted during covid we saw people act during yeah during some demonstrations and things that happened, I am much more afraid of other people than I am of some like disease. Oh, for you know, sure. it's like, and so I think that this movie really shows that, right. The enemies are other people. That's the danger, right. And the film has the guts to kind of take the most cynical attitude about this and the most humorous and dark attitude towards this. So yeah, which I, I
2: appreciate too, because I think I agree with you. And again, it would have been really easy for them to go, for him to go from heel to hero, like a la Han Solo. And they went the exact opposite. And I totally love that. It's yeah. Like yeah. That's parts of the movie to me. It's great. So I'd say I'm as long as Plissken snake
3: here. I would say <laughs> uh, very long. I, you know, and I knew I would be, even though, you know, I think you did a good job of poking some holes into some of the science or whatever. Again, don't think it matters you know i i i still think it holds up even (laughs) even with that and uh you know it's not like force awakens where you can poke holes in it but it's stupid anyway it's like this this you could poke holes but it's fun and you you know you're kind of just willing to give the movie uh you know uh, give give it some credit and and give it a few inches of of uh you know plausible deniability right a few (laughs) few inches of snake. Anyway, that's our our giant episode here
2: on uh, Escape from New York. So I guess we'll just end it there. We will. Have a good one, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, maybe don't go see Escape from L.A. So we'll we'll sign off now. We'll hear a little bit more from the president.
3: The Duke.
0: Play one. <laughs>